Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Scholder, and this is Learning to Fail. People are complicated. I know a lot of complicated people. My guest today is David Castro. David is one of the most accomplished Hollywood writers I've ever worked with. We made movies together, we've traveled together, we've won and lost trivia contests together. We met while he was living in Asheville. I still don't know what brought him here, but I'm sorry that he left. I always learn something when I talk to David. Today was no exception. Before we roll today's interview, I want to say how grateful I am to everyone who has subscribed to Learning to Fail and downloaded the episodes currently available. Numerous people have written to say they felt like they were right in the room with us. That is precisely the way I want these conversations to feel. I still marvel at the fact that people are willing to take time out of their lives to talk to me, much less listen. The fact that so many of you have been motivated to take the additional step of writing to me is truly humbling. So thank you. I will do everything in my power to keep bringing you an experience that is at once personal and engaging. Learning to Fail podcast is my avenue for expanding the way I think and the things I think about. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about Learning to Fail and encourage them to tell theirs. Take a moment to rate us on iTunes and check out our website for additional information about each of the people we interview. While you're there, please visit our Donate and Amazon pages. Each page will give you clear instructions on what to do. For the time being, we are a completely donation-based podcast, so all of our episodes are being brought to you by you. Our donation page will allow you to make one-time or recurring donations. Our Amazon portal enables you to support the podcast without spending any extra money of your own. Please bookmark our Amazon page and start your shopping there every time you visit or buy anything on Amazon. The most helpful thing you can do is simply to listen to the podcast and encourage others to do the same. The world will be a better place when we can all start learning to fail together. Let's listen to my conversation with David Castro. It was great reconnecting after all these years. We both lived in L.A., but it took us both fleeing L.A. to meet up in Asheville at the Asheville Filmmakers Group a number of years ago. I didn't and necessarily flee. I fled. <laughs> you fled. I didn't mean to project on you <laughs> that you had the same uh, reasons for leaving that I did. But... I didn't have that three o'clock knock on the door. You know? Oh, yeah. No, right. <laughs> no one said, Yudin, Yudin, Rouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, it was a voluntary fleeing. It was like I'd had enough. I always kind of knew I was going to leave right around then, and enough stars aligned in my life that it made sense to leave when I did, so. One man's fling is another man's, I think I'll change a few things in my life. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, right. I think I probably would describe most things as fleeing, even <laughs> if it's just, I'm changing a few things in my life. Um, so tell me what you're up to. You're back in town, you're visiting Asheville, you left a few years ago, things have been going amazing for you since you left. And I always kind of was curious why you came here in the first place, so I wanna hear a little bit about that. Um, but I'm very interested in why you're back, if you're staying, if you're moving back. I, you know, you've kind of hinted at a couple things, so, so well, fill me in. Well, gladly. Uh, I have a beautiful house in North Asheville. Okay, it's from 1927. 
And I think I came here because Asheville has houses from 1927. Right. And I've uh, not having lived in a lot of houses in my lifetime, uh, only since my working years have I, have I bought houses and lived in them. I've always liked the idea of an older house built with care by craftspeople. Right. And I was here with my son. I moved here in 2008. I was here with my son about three years previous to that. And it was a college slash Civil War tour. And we stopped in Asheville for a three-day rest to not be on the road. And I knew of Asheville. I knew it was a, a sea of blue and a world of purple, red now. Yeah. You know, but a sea of blue, liberal, artsy, uh, all the things I want in a place. Old houses, gay-friendly. Not that there's anything wrong with what I am. <laughs> um, and, and just a great atmosphere, you right. know, for creative types. Right. Um, I came here, I found the house, and I knew someday, which turned out to be 2008, that I would be back. I came here not knowing a soul. Um, I came here looking for an older house. I came here not running away from anything because I'm a writer and my, my work is in my head and my hands. Uh, and it just fit. I, I felt I was a good fit. Yeah. You know, I can write anywhere and this place is conducive to creating, did you know, you no matter some... what it is, whether you're using clay or, or a blank piece of paper. Did you do some good work while you were here? Did... I think so. I think so. Um, I wrote, uh, in, I was here for four years, three and a half, actually. Um, I was here for three and a half years and I think I did some good work. I think, oddly enough, the first thing I wrote when I got back to L.A. and I went there specifically for work to show more people what I was doing. Right. I wrote a play called Man's Dominion, which is based on the execution of Mary the Elephant in Irwin, Tennessee in 1916. Irwin, Tennessee is 44 miles from Asheville. Okay. And I first heard of the story my first September in Asheville in 2008. And they had a picture of the event. They lynched an elephant. It's unbelievable. It's a true story. And it was always with me, but I never wrote it I never wrote a word of it while I was here. I moved to L.A. and it's the first thing I did. I moved back to L.A. and it's the first thing I did. And that play called Man's Dominion has since been done 90 times, 90 performances in L.A., in Orlando, Toronto, Chicago, New York, and Muscle Shoals, Alabama. That's unbelievable. That's just so cool. And so I owe all of that to being here. Right. That's funny. I mean, that can happen. You know, it's like, I mean, I, you know, in a different way, uh, I built furniture and cabinets when I lived in LA and everyone always teases me about the fact that I left LA building cabinets and furniture and moved to the furniture capital of the world and started making <laughs> movies. And, you know, I just knew I wanted to do something different and maybe like being in the, and just immersed in the film industry for so long, I didn't want to be a part of the industry, but the desire to express myself that way that got in there somehow. And as I was leaving, I wrote a screenplay, which you read yeah. for Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, everyone's read it except Larry. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, and I, this is, yeah, anyway, there's a lot of funny stories about that almost getting to Larry. Sure. And uh, anyway, so <clears throat> it wasn't until I got to Asheville that I was like, you know, I would love to do something with movies, or I'd love to do something with film. And now I'm doing stand up comedy, which I really you know, could have done when I lived in LA, that would have been definitely the time to do it. I don't think I had anything to say back then. I mean, maybe if I tried, I would have, but it, it wasn't ever something I wanted to do back then. 
But now it's the only thing I want to do. I understand the head completely because I did stand up for five years. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I grew right. up in New York. I grew up going to the improv, uh, even before there was a catch a rising star. This goes back. And the people who were big when I was going to the improv, while I was in high school and college, uh, Robert Klein, I'll tell you how old it was, yeah. Richard Pryor, Albert Brooks, and the big New Yorker who was making it big at that time was Richard Belzer, wow. who was one of us. Right. Klein was a New Yorker as well. And, you know, I was a nasty high school kid and a funny high school kid and a smart and funny, nasty high, uh, college kid. And I'd go there with my friends and I'd sit there and think, I can do this. I can do this. But uh, as someone who considers himself somewhat fearless, I was scared shitless to do it. And why? Not because I didn't think I'd be funny. I thought someone would see me fail that I knew. Oh. And it wasn't until I left that I was able to express that to myself, that that's why I wasn't doing it. Oh, that's interesting. So I moved to San Francisco in 1976, and I was on stage two days later. Oh, wow. And it's because, who can see me? Right, you're not. I don't know them. Yeah, yeah, you're... I fail, big deal. Failing in front of strangers is easy. And what you're learning doing stand-up is, it's the classic, you need places to fail. Right. So once I embraced the idea of failing, you know, to get better, it just happened in a place I wasn't living, just right, like yeah. you. Well, sometimes you, you, need, you need a little freedom to be able to embrace yeah. the opportunity to fail. And yeah. you know that the name of this podcast is Learning to Fail, right? I do now. Yeah. I, I, so, I didn't remember. Yeah. So, and that was actually inspired by you because you taught me that phrase uh, when we were working on the Bobby Slayton documentary, which I hope we get back to one day. And I, you know, I remember you saying something like, this is where comedians came to learn to fail. It was one of the ways we described the zoo or some some place mm -hmm. in San Francisco and the Holy City Zoo. The Holy City Zoo, yeah, right. Not the just for the people zoo. listening at home. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And the tough crowd at the zoo. The animals they just don't uh, they don't react. But so I just remember that and it really stuck out for me that phrase. And I do think like I'm living in Asheville now and I've performed for the first time in Asheville. Unlike you, I did the opposite. I invited everyone I knew to come watch me fail the first time. I assumed that I would suck and that I'd never do it again. Like it was supposed to be liberating for me and that I could get it out of my system, try it once, probably not have a great success because everybody fails their first time and then I would never have to do it again. But I didn't totally suck. I mean, I'm not going to say I brought the house down, right. but I didn't totally suck. Right. And... And I was so high afterwards. I mean, just, I was just on such a natural adrenaline high from performing. I was like, there's no way I'm not doing this again. I couldn't wait for my next opportunity. Yeah. And I think my next opportunity was when I was in Japan, ironically. And I, uh, I went to an open mic there because sort of shortly after that, I had to leave to do a yoga trip. And while I was there, I looked up open mics and I found this one and these, I emailed them and they're like, yeah, we'll squeeze you into the second set. No problem. And the spirit of Jerry Lewis just inhabited my body and you didn't do an open mic. You did an open mic. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> I didn't put the buck teeth in and the glasses. Yeah. I just said what Jerry probably would not have said as kindly. <laughs> well, it was run by, uh, it was all expatriates. You know, I, I don't think there were. I mean, there were a few locals in the audience. Most of them are, you know, romantically involved with expatriates. But it was this little tiny expatriate bar. And when I walked in, it looked like it'd hold 10 people. But by the time the open mic started, there were 40 people crammed in there. That's Japanese housing. Listening. 
yeah, it's definitely <laughs> is consistent with the amount of space there. I mean, it is such a different world in Tokyo. Yeah. They just build up and incredibly densely populated. So um, that was a big thing for me when I came back here from India a number of years ago. I will never forget the first day I drove whatever my normal commute was, my first day back from India. And I looked around and there was, I just like, there is so much wasted space. There could be so many families living on the side of this road. Like what is going on that we have such a lack of appreciation for how much space we have? Not, you know, and now that I live here, I'm like, I really enjoy all the space. And if you go to New York City, there's not as much of it. Yeah. But all of India, I mean, there's just no place that it isn't fairly densely populated. I mean, places that you wouldn't think could be livable, they're living there. I, I remember being very struck by but that. But they've also been there for 6,000 years. It's true. You know. Yeah. We've had... only been here since 1750 in Asheville. I mean, there were people here before, but they're all gone. Yeah. Uh, because that's called progress in America. You <laughs> kill the native peoples. Right. That's how we do it. Ay. And they're concerned with taking Andrew Jackson off the bill. Yeah. You know? A man who committed genocide against an entire group of people. I know. Which I is the definition of genocide. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's... I saw a comedian in L.A. He was doing a whole thing about, uh, you know, they're putting Harriet Tubman on the front of the bill. And they're like... And they said something like... Something about having Andrew Jackson now on the back of the bill. The front of the bill just became the back of the bill. Absolutely. That's what in they back said. Of the, absolutely. No, yeah. it's terrible. Jackson, what is he going to do? Have a knife in his teeth, like ready to pounce? Yeah. It's hor horrible thinking that he's still going to be there. Yeah. You know, considering he owned, what, 300 slaves? I don't know. Yeah. You know, and in true American presidential form among the presidents who owned slaves, when he died, he didn't free them. Mm. You know, so, no, he shouldn't be on the back of the bill. And, you know, in a different America, when we weren't learning about right. the balance in these people's lives. Yes, he, he saved the city of New Orleans in 1814. Yes, he also destroyed the Cherokee Nation. You know, yes, he also committed genocide. Yes, he also tried to do whatever he tried to do with the banks. Right. You know, destroy them, basically. But, but there was no balance in our history, in the way we learned it. Mm. Now we're learning that balance. Right. So what do you think about that? I mean, I think this is an interesting issue. It's a very sensitive issue. So I want to treat it with the sensitivity it deserves. But I'm always struck by the desire for people to go back in time and prosecute past behavior by contemporary standards. I, I know exactly. We, I've had that conversation. Okay. Okay. Thomas Jefferson, along with Lincoln, he's considered like the best of us. Okay. Not just president, but the best of us. Okay, what was Jefferson's big flaw? He owned slaves. Right. Okay, and he included in the, the, you know, all men are created equal, except some are less equal than others. Right. That wasn't part of the Declaration. Anyway, the, the problem that we face is when people try to rewrite history by the moral standards of today. I mean, if I were, okay, I like to think of myself as a liberal, liberal progressive, but if I were a white land-owning Southerner in Virginia in 1750, I would have owned slaves. It was the rare land-owning, you know, landed gentry, right. Virginian with money, who didn't own slaves. Right. And none of them were speaking out against the evils of it. Right. So it's, we would have been those people. We would not have been who we are today. Right. Because you just couldn't be. You know, had we been born in the 1300s, in the Dark Ages, in the 900s, we would not be post-Enlightenment people. We would not be post-Renaissance you know, people. We'd be 
people in the 13th century who would die from an infection and blame ourselves because we offended God. So God is punishing us. Right. We didn't pray hard enough or long enough. So I, I am with you on that. It's wrong for anybody in any so-called modern era, which is basically whatever today happens to be. Right. It's wrong. They were who they were. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's a, it's an impossible standard to hold people to. Uh, so, you know, so then in that context, is it right or wrong to keep Jackson on the $20 bill? Well, in that context, we've also been alive another 200 and some odd years. Right. You know, he was born in the 1700s. He was, the Battle of New Orleans was 1814. I think... It's not just necessary and proper. I think it's mandatory that we examine who we've become. I mean, no one is saying burn all the books about Andrew Jackson. Right. No one is saying that historians can't write books that tell us all the good things he did. Right. You know, and put all the things he did that we consider bad and wrong in a historical context. Right. We're all people of our times. No one is ahead of their time. There are people who are different. You know, but when Mozart did what he did, there were other people writing what we call classical music. To right. them, it was music. Right. To them, it was music. You know? Yeah. But, but it wasn't like he was an alien who showed up and he wrote music that no one was doing. He just wrote it better than other people. Right. You know, or different slash better. But I don't think it's wrong to take the time in any modern day, in any present day age, and say who we are, who we've become. And, and... The fact that there are people fighting it means that we're not all at the same level of enlightenment, call it. Yeah. And, and those people who we say are not enlightened, they think they're enlightened. Of course. Everyone you know thinks I mean? they're enlightened. Everybody yeah. has their Especially own in measure. Yeah. But they have their own measure of what it means. Sure. You know, and, and the war that's always been fought since the beginning of time is between tradition and modernity. Right. You know, and I think... For the most part, enlightenment in and of itself, whatever you want to call it, enlightenment means a break from tradition and an embrace of not just modernity, but what comes next. What's the next modernity? Right. Whereas tradition says, I'm afraid of the modern world. I'm afraid of what's next. Let's just keep things the way they are. Right. Andrew Jackson. Right. Perfect example. So, so then the idea behind changing the... <clears throat> the face and ultimately, I would hope, the back of the $20 bill at, or our currency in general or whatever is to say, you know, what do we, how do we want to represent ourselves now, right? We want this bill to represent who we view ourselves now, what we value now, what we'd like to make reparations on or pay homage to or sort of, we can't change the past, but maybe some sort of a, uh, a symbolic corrective measure about the past or, or an honoring or whatever the right phrasing is for that. And so that's why we make the choice to put Harriet Tubman on the bill now. Is that the idea? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I also think, let's face it, you know, when Andrew Jackson was alive in the early part of the 19th century, Harriet Tubman was, was made famous in the middle part of the 19th century. But they weren't about to put a black woman on our money. Oh, sure. Yeah. In the years preceding the Civil War, they certainly weren't going to do it during Reconstruction. And they haven't done it in the years since we landed on the moon. 
Right. And we're living in a modern world. Right. So I think if you want to be true to who we want to be as a people, because right. we're not there yet, that you have to put, if not Harriet Tubman, a Harriet Tubman-like woman specifically, hmm. black person on our money. So it needs to be a woman of color. I, so I, kinda... I don't want to make it sound like, you know, the black female judge on a TV show, you know, in a sea of whiteness. Right. No, I, I think... What she represents is what America represents, freedom. Hmm. You know, the Statue of Liberty to me is, is the greatest statue in the world, you know, because of what it represents. People used to get on boats from nowhere and cry when they saw it. Yeah. And if the story of America is one of people seeking freedom, well, that's who she was. She led people to freedom from bondage. Yeah. At great peril. Too. And at great peril to herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And selflessly. Yeah. And and I I think if the people on the other side of the issue just really thought it through with a thoughtful person helping them. Yeah. You know, because they need a guide, then they'll understand that there's really nothing wrong with it. We're not saying Andrew Jackson's a terrible person. You know, we're saying he's not representative of who we are in the totality of his life. Right. For all we know, she beat her child. You know what I mean? For all we know, she, she burnt the eggs. But what we know of her, pretty much the only thing I know of her, is that she was a major force in the Underground Railroad and saved directly hundreds, if not thousands of people. Right. She deserves, you know, to be on, to be on something. Right. And if, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I totally agree. Yeah. You know, I'm 100% in favor of it. And... And I like the idea, I think it's an interesting thing, you know, that our currency changes. And then there's a whole new concept of social currency that people talk about all the time. And so there's, that's an interesting, you know, dual purpose of, of making this choice. You know, it's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm all about stuff like that, though. You know, and, and I really like the idea of, you know, Andrew Jackson just doesn't represent who we are now, how we see ourselves now, what our values are now. And so let's make a change that's more reflective of who we are, who we want to be, who we want to sort of move forward as, as a nation. And that feels like that decision. And from that perspective, I think it's a great decision. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it just, it makes people who haven't been as happy as the people who like were on the Andrew Jackson side of things. Right a little more happy. And that happiness translates into inclusiveness, translates into a more American feel. It translates into sharing that freedom. That touches into a whole other um, fascinating sort of issue for me. Uh, I don't even know if I know how to give expression to it. But, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about the prison system lately. And... I'm not going to be the first person to say this, but I'm the first person to have said it to some of the people I know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know. <laughs> and you the mean. fact that I'm ever the first person to say anything to someone always surprises me. Eh. But, you know, the, the prisons are privatized now, a lot of them. I don't know if all of them are, but a lot of them are privatized. And when I drive down the road, I see all this prison labor cleaning up the highways. And I know that those guys are not getting paid the outside of prison minimum wage. They're not making seven twenty-five an hour, and they're not going to get bumped up to fifteen an hour when that goes 
you know, national. And they're making pennies an hour because it's a privilege for them to be able to leave the walls of the prison and work. And I'm all in favor of them having the opportunity to get outside the walls of the prison and work. Like I'm, so I'm in favor from that perspective. Socially, I'm in favor of the prison work program, even though I don't know the details around it. But I know that those contracts, the government isn't paying eight cents an hour or 25 cents an hour. The government's paying, whether it's 7.25 an hour or 15 an hour or a contractor rate of 25 or $50 an hour, whatever they're paying, they're paying to these private organizations that are in charge of the road work that are either one with or hired by the prison or, or, or excuse me, hiring the prison. Somehow this is a private company that's getting the contract for the road work that's using prison labor, the majority of which is minority people. So we're, it's now become a legalized form of slavery. Absolutely. That blows my mind. How is that possibly okay? Well, as Bernie Sanders will say, and a lot of people will agree with, the enemy of social progress in the United States is capitalism. Hmm. You know, it doesn't mean we want to, you know, put our, our wooden shoes in the machinery, you know, right. which is where the word sabotage came from. When the Industrial Revolution started in Europe, you know, the, the French oh. particularly wore wooden Sabatos. shoes that were called yeah, sabot, right. S-A-B-O-T. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you saw those pictures of the giant gears in modern times with Chaplin, he's working with the giant gears right, and right, he gets right. stuck in it. No, they would take their wooden shoes and would slip them in between the gears, the machines would stop and they'd say, ah, and it was called sabotage. That's so it's they actually put their wooden shoes in to break down the machines. Anyway, the job of a corporation, prison corporation or whatever, is to increase profits for their shareholders. As you've seen, you know, with, with you know, terrible things being put in the air and the water and the food, as you've seen with car companies that falsify, you know, the, yeah. uh, you know, Volkswagen, Toyota, they falsify things, you know, in order to get people to buy them. So they can say to the shareholders, last year we made $1.10 per share, now we're making $1.50. Next year we're looking for two thirty, And that's what's happened in the world of capitalism. Companies aren't responsible to human people, you know, in general, the worldwide audience. They're responsible to the people lucky enough to have shares in the company. Okay, so I just had the worst thought. Please tell me if these dots connect, and I'd like to think that they don't. Mm -hmm. But if the price per share is going up, and the economy is often measured by the stock market, then the economy seeming to improve is improving on the backs of, in this case, prison labor, largely minority prison labor, effectively slavery. So not a lot has changed. And ironically, and I'm a big pro-Obama guy, but now this is happening under Obama. Like I'm making a horrifying connection in my head that I really don't want. But ultimately, if you make that connection, that's where you have to go, you know? Because yeah, that's how the economy is based. And no one sits around and says, you know, all of this is, it's not soil and green. You know, we're not saying we're gonna use people up, spit them out and turn them into food, you know? But in effect, that's, been the way of the world. 
Right. You know, and it's certainly the way of capitalism. I live, you know, I, I, I read the articles about the people, you know, who used to work at Goldman Sachs and the people who used to work. And I've read comments by people who said, last year I made 30 million, this year I'm only making 8 million. I can't live like that. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you made 30 million in one year, your family for the next five generations will never have to break a sweat. Right. And that's what we're finding. And now you're worried you're only making 8 million? Okay, so for only three generations, your family won't have to work. That's the problem. And in the Bible, it says, and I will quote lots of things from many Bibles, money is not the root of all evil. The pursuit of money is the root of all evil. Because people, America 2016, a lot of people put money before people, profits before people. And that's exactly the case with the prison system. Also, don't forget, they love the idea of all the states that don't give voting rights to felons. So it's this perpetual giant wheel mm, of right. let's arrest people, let's you know charge them with felonies, let's put them in the privatized prison system, and when they get out, make it impossible for them to become part of society again as a whole human being American because we'll still prevent them from voting. Right, and, and preventing them from voting prevents them from voting against the system that just disenfranchised them so that just furthers and sort of concretizes the disenfranchisement of this group of people Absolutely. and probably the people like them. Wow, Absolutely. that's really funny. And, and you know, I, 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 that is the world to me. You know, it doesn't mean I can't wake up and smile and play, and play you know, Prince and, and be happy about things and go to Yosemite Park and think it's the greatest place in the world. But knowing that there are people who want to frack all over Yosemite Park knowing that there's a major political party in this country that wants to destroy it. Hmm. You know, and everything in it, it's anti-human, it's inhumane, it's anti-people, it's anti-children, it's anti-our progeny. I, it's horrifying. Yeah. 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 I had the idea to make a t-shirt with Dick Cheney's face on it and looking at a beautiful mountain, whether it was Mount Rushmore or... El Capitan from Yosemite, some icon, like a series of t-shirts where he's looking at iconic mountains and saying, I'd frack that. <laughs> and I thought it was the greatest, most original idea. And then I Googled it. They're already out there, you know, and they even have his face on it. You know, it's, uh, so that was the end of that. Just means you had a great idea. Yeah. I had a great idea and I didn't have to uh, put myself through the torture That's of right. pursuing it as a business That's venture. Right. Unlike the other great ideas that I've had that have, I'm the only one who thought of it. So I've been forced to do but it. But That's the thing. I see Yosemite and I think it's just people are different. I see Yosemite and I think, my God, this is, I don't believe in a heaven, but I believe in Yosemite. Right. And I'm inspired when I'm there. It's a museum. It's a natural museum. You're inspired by it. You know, I took my kids there as often as I could. And other people see it as, how can we get the resources out? How can we make it make money for us? It's unbelievable. And... You know, I'm, I'm one of those romantics who loves the idea that it was America's best idea. You know, the Ken Burns the national, documentary. Yeah. The national Whoever park said system. that, the national park yeah. system. Yeah. No, it is. America's greatest idea, because... Yeah. Uh, yeah, otherwise, it's just there's no preserving it. Yeah. So, wow, we've gone way... <laughs> A field. Time to be funny. Um, no, I, we, there's no obligation to be funny. Yeah, I, I like I, it. I, I love that. Um, I like having these conversations with you because you really know about stuff that I really wish I knew about. So I always have learned, just even throughout the years of our conversations, I've always learned something from them. And so it's, uh, it's 
Well, I'm very flattered, but but I, I can turn it now into comedy because my feeling, there's different levels of comedy. There's different reasons for comedy. My feeling is that the highest form of comedy is social criticism. I think a comedian is a true descendant of a court jester. Court jester didn't slip on banana peels. Right. The court jester would throw a banana out and say, here's the king slipping on a banana peel. Right. Because the court jester spoke truth to power. Hmm. Okay. Court jesters had balls because often they'd be killed. Right. You know, when the king said, I don't think that's funny anymore. Right. Okay. But to me, the idea of speaking truth to power, Mark Twain, Will Rogers, Richard Pryor, George Carlin, Bill Maher, the idea, you know, uh, Colbert. The idea of speaking truth to power and making it palatable slash funny right. slash thinkingly funny. Yeah. To me, that's the highest form of comedy. In the Talmud, there's like 13 different ways to give charity. And the best, of course, is anonymously. Right. You know, you don't have the Jules Stein Eye Clinic. You know, the, my way of thinking, Eye Clinic right. would have been great. And like Jules Stein and his friends knew, you know, Julie gave the money for this. But it wasn't public. Right. But you know what? He wanted his name on it okay. But in the Talmud, that's like 11th on the list. Right. You know, it's still charity, but there's a little self-involvement. Self right. Real true charity is eye clinic. <laughs> I remember I, there was a, if it's a poem or a stanza from a poem, or I, and I think, I want to say it was E.E. E. Cummings or someone like that. But it said, uh, heard melodies are sweet and those unheard are sweeter. Which is along the, for me, it's along those lines. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was something in the context of, you know, giving a gift and not needing the person to know where it came yeah. from. And, and when you go to Ingalls Market and, you know, they're during the year, they have various, uh, you know, uh, this charity, this charity, and you can have a little balloon, you know, a, a little sticker with your name on it, like you gave $5 to the Girl Scouts or $3 to Cancer Care. And, I mean, I like seeing them. I like seeing because, you know, Deirdre N. It's, it's not a full name, number one. But I love in the midst of those, you'll see like Anam. And it's like, and I, I really, I'll just kind of nod to myself because I'm just another asshole too. Like, this is what I believe. Right. And I really respect Anonymous. Right. You know, I love Deirdre. Deirdre found it in her heart to give. Deirdre N., right. no last name. You know, Bill W. But I really love and respect Anonymous. Right. Yeah, no, I hear you. Of course, it could be that the Anon family just owns an estate <laughs> overlooking England. They used to be the Rabinowitzes. And they <laughs> and said, we don't Anon. want to be so Jewish. Let's become the Anonymous family. <laughs> we're the Anons. Anonymoskowitz. <laughs> Anonymoskowitz. Shortened to Anon, so no one knows we're Jewish. <laughs> so, all right. So let's go back a little bit. Um, I know that you you moved to to San Francisco in 1976. Mm -hmm. Two days later, you're on stage. Tell me about your first time on stage. What happened? Tell me about the the comedy scene in San Francisco in the 70s. Okay, 1976. The Holy City Zoo had been there for like a year. Okay, and I was completely unaware of it. Is that the bar we went to, by the way? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so we did go by. That's that's what yeah. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. So the Holy City Zoo. It's out in the. Uh, uh, what you call it? Uh, what's the name of the district? It's not. It's the Richmond. It's in the Richmond district in San Francisco. So north of downtown. Okay. On the east side. Right. The west side is the Sunset. Okay. Okay. Golden Gate Park's in the middle. Anyway, uh, I get there in uh, like you know June of '76, and I open up the newspaper, and they start talking about there's this comedy club, and I thought comedy club. I only knew the one in New York. I knew there was one. I knew the Hungry Eye existed in San Francisco. 
in the 50s. Right. I knew Mort Saul had come from there and lots of other people. Nichols and May played The Hungry Eye. But I didn't hear about other things. And I certainly hadn't heard of the Holy City Zoo. So I opened up probably their weekly paper too, like the Mountain Express here, uh, the Bay Guardian. Yeah. I open up the Bay Guardian and they say, open mic, open mic, open mic, open mic. You know, and maybe it said, you know, uh, you know Thursday, uh, you know, Dana Carvey, Robin Williams. And, At a time uh, when those names meant nothing. Meant nothing. Right. They were locals. Yeah. You know? That's, an, that's even just thinking... I know. That's, that's unfathomable know. at this point it, it, in time. It, it's one of those rare instances where you can actually say, I was somewhere when something started. Yeah. You know? And I knew them when... And yeah, I knew when they were kids, basically. Yeah. We were all kids together. Yeah. It's the Patti Smith book, Just Kids. Yeah. You know, all these people making this great music. You know? So I moved to San Francisco, and literally two days later... I go up there and there's an open mic and I sign up for it because I always had material. Right. You know, the stuff that you say to your other smart, funny friends is material. Right. I knew I had stuff I could fall back on. And, you know, I always loved the idea of index cards and bullet points. Before bullet points, there were just index cards with like, okay, I can't write everything I'm going to say. How can I say it in two words? Ten years later, that was a bullet point. Right. Anyway, I go and I sign up. Hadn't seen it. Hadn't seen how it worked. Uh, and there were a whole bunch of people there and you know, they're all, all the people who were milling about like, you know, talking to each other. That's all the comedians, the people, the civilians, the people who aren't going to go on stage are seated and drinking right. and they're comfortable. They're at a table, boyfriends and girlfriends, you know, a bunch of guys, a bunch of women, whatever it is. But you can see the people who are constantly in motion like sharks, <laughs> you know, they have to move around, talk to each other or they'll die. And they seem like an interesting group of people. They seemed like people I would know and like that I was. Mm. And that first night, I couldn't tell you who else I saw, but that first night I saw someone who became a giant club comic in the 80s and 90s and who's been a lifelong friend of mine, Bobby Slayton. Mm. Oddly enough, my first night on stage, my first five minutes ever on stage was his second five minutes. So you guys are really... So he comes up to me after my set. I had seen his set. And he did jokes about the Three Stooges and he did jokes about Dracula and monster movies and Godzilla. And it was funny stuff because he had attitude and he talked like this and that, 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 yeah. and, and biting. And he had a persona. He already had the persona that became known as the Pitbull. Right. But the, I, I saw the beginnings of the Pitbull. And I did five minutes of stuff that, you know, interested me at that moment. I, I wanted to be a little more like Mozart. Like walk out, not with a newspaper, but armed with what had happened that day, the day before that week, talk about it, and the next time do another completely different group of stuff, mm. batch of material. So I did my so-called topical material, and Bobby comes up to me after I saw I had seen his act, and he said, Castro, Castro, Castro. Everybody's always called me Castro. It makes sense. Easy name. Castro, Castro. Come here, come here, come here, come here. I said, what? You know, I'm a New Yorker. I, yeah. You know. Is he going to sell me watches? What does he want? <laughs> I'm not buying. He says, I saw your act. Okay. You shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> and I knew what was coming next, but I let him just fill in with the space. Hey. Great comic timing. You shouldn't be doing it. You shouldn't be doing it. I should. <laughs> and that first night on stage, I was not only selling jokes, bits and pieces of what I had just done, like for $15, for $10. I didn't know how much anything would go for. Right. I just said uh, 
And somebody said, okay, you know? And then I said, I'll give you all three jokes. I'll write a hunk for you. Because that's the other thing. I had gotten a degree in journalism and theater. So I was writing all during my years in college. Right. And I knew that if I was going to do this again, I'd write another five minutes. Right. And so I wasn't worried where the new material was coming from. I always felt confident enough that I'd create it. So writing for other people was just, I'll write another five minutes for you. So yeah, it wasn't, so you weren't my, precious about the five minutes. Not at write, all. Right? Not at yeah, all. And I was, helpful. and I was fine with selling pieces of what I had just said because he was probably right. He was probably going to do it better than me. Right. And you, know? you were going to abandon it anyway. And yeah, and it didn't, it, I wasn't married to it. Right. I loved it. I loved it enough to say it on stage and take the chance that someone might not laugh. Right. And here's someone who could do it, get a bigger laugh and keep it forever. Right. And so, yeah. So for my time, I lived there for five years. For three of those years, I didn't file tax returns. I lived like a drug dealer because... I sold material. That's great. And some weeks I made $800. Some weeks I made $120. Some weeks I didn't make anything. Because that's the reality. Not a lot happened in the news that week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or I just didn't have anything new to think about or yeah, say. Right. And or it just didn't hit the people I was selling to. Did you generally go up and perform it and people would buy from your failed act? Or were, did you did you write for them? There were There were two ways. The main way was... Because I came from watching and loving stand-up since the time I was a child. My favorite show was the Ed Sullivan Show as a kid. Not because Ed Sullivan himself was interesting, but because on a weekly, every Sunday night basis for the year, he would have comedians. Right. He would have big comedians that I knew, that I'd seen over the years. See, Bob Hope would be on. But he would also have Jackie Vernon, Jackie Mason, John Biner, London Lee, whoever they were. They were on the Sullivan show and I'm eight and I'm nine and I'm 12. And I knew when I got a little older that I saw these people on Steve Allen's tonight show, Mm. you know, what became late night television, you know, but I don't remember Jack Parr, you know, I do remember Steve Allen because luckily I had a brother who was six years older. So I was able to see comedians, comedians, comedians. And there was something in the balls and the bravery and the guts they showed. Everybody else, I love Sinatra, and he may take songs and make them his own, but he didn't write them, he didn't create them. Comedians, for the most part, until you hear that Hope has, you know, a staff of 12 writers locked in a room in Toluca Lake. (laughs) They're not, comedians to me are the bravest people in show business. Because they create their persona, they write or create their material, or they have material written for them for that persona, and they shape it. Right. And it becomes theirs. Everybody, the rest of the world thinks every comic writes their own stuff. Well, you and I know differently. But since I had that love for the form, I always had material going through my head from all these comedians. And the bad part about that is I can hear people do jokes and I could say, you know, you shouldn't do this joke because I saw it on Sullivan two weeks ago. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, or yeah. I, you know, I'm having the opposite experience. I do write all my own material, mm-hmm. for better or worse. And I constantly have the experience that people are telling me what I should do in my stand-up. Or I'll tell them a story. Oh, you could put that in your stand-up. Or they'll be like, oh, I just had a, something happen. You can put, you know, you should use it in your stand-up. And I just say thank you. But I, I, it's never something I would put in my stand-up. Even the stuff that comes out of my mouth, 
occasionally I'll be like, yeah, that's, that could be a bit, but it's usually more a, qu- a quiet observation that will become a bit like, you know, the other day I was, uh, I was, um, flying out of either into or out of San Jose. I think I was on my way to San Jose and I don't know where I was. It was a ticket counter and I saw a young Middle Eastern looking guy there and he was hip and he was young, he was a good looking kid. And, uh, they had just kicked some kid off a plane for speaking, speaking Arabic. Arabic, right? And so I had this thought. Uh, actually, I think I, I had this thought before that event. Um, I looked at him and I was like, I wonder if that guy ever gets racially profiled when he travels. And I was like, that's a horrible thought. You're not allowed to have those thoughts. And so, but then I ended up writing this whole bit about Southwest Airlines and this racial profiling bit. And, and, and I had this desire to go up and ask him, <laughs> which of course I didn't. And, and then Southwest Airlines got busted for, for this kid. And so now I do have this bit that I do and I tie it in. I'm like, you know, I fly Southwest, but I, you know, there's a lot of things I don't like about it. And one is they keep kicking Muslims off their flights. And I ended up sitting, I ended up sitting next to this Muslim. I've changed it, you know, to mm-hmm. make it fit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I sit out, you know, I'm sitting next to this kid and he's young and he's hip. And I describe that same guy, you know, and, uh, they announced there's going to be a little bit of a delay and he and I get to talking and I ask him, I said, have you ever been, do you ever get racially profiled when you travel? And he says, not until now. It's <laughs> <laughs> very funny. So, uh, a long way to go for that. But, um, that's, that is more what happens with me. Like I will have some horrible, I know I shouldn't think this thought. And then I try to find a way like, well, how, do, how can I think that out loud that doesn't make me a horrible person and make it funny and make it funny yeah no, and, and it accessible yeah right and real like yeah. because who doesn't have that thought you know or yeah. something like it i mean it's terrible but we it, yeah. and here i was actually thinking it was a sympathetic thought or an empathetic thought or whatever you know yeah. it wasn't like i was thinking he was empathy a is problem. better than sympathy that's that's you know it starts it's earlier in the alphabet right yeah. e is better than s Right. And empathy is you feel what they feel. Sympathy is just, oh, they're there. Well, the reason I think I'm, I'm careful around empathy is I don't know if you can feel empathy. Well, this is the thing. that Maybe it, I'm just not good at it. That's very possible. Um, I always think of empathy as like you almost have to have had the experience, but it's not that. It's that you can project yourself into the experience and feel the other person's. There, the, right? way, the way I, I've thought it and learned it, I guess, empathy to me is what makes us human. Right. It doesn't mean other species can't have empathetic feelings. Right. But empathy on a human scale is what makes us human. And we know that conservatives in America, it's been proven, you know, through brain scans and things or lack of brain scans, that empathy is lacking in the conservative mind. Hmm. That's interesting. But what you were talking about in regards to the material, um, it goes hand in hand with when I say stand-ups in particular, the bravest people in show business. Because what a stand-up does is, number one, they go up there naked. They go up there as themselves. They're not a character in a play. Don't get me wrong. I love actors and actresses. But a stand-up goes up. You're introduced as who you are. In theory, we're hearing what you personally have to say on any subject, which is why the fear comes in. And why I hate people like uh, Andrew Dice Clay. When he did his horrible act back in the day and he said, well, that's just the character I play. No, the character you're playing is you, Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah. You, you say these horrible things because you, Andrew Dice Clay, say them. Just, to, just say it. Own it. Right. Have the balls and guts to be who you are. Okay? 
Having said that, the reason I love stand-ups is because they do this with the proviso that they also have to make it funny. Funny enough so that, what, not just one or two people in the audience laugh, but maybe six out of ten. Right. You know? I, I personally never cared to make everyone laugh. I think that's impossible. You know, maybe Chaplin was the only person who did that. And I'm sure there were people who said, you know, but I think he might be Jewish. I can't laugh. <laughs> but but my, my point is that everyone in that audience, at some point in their life, either on purpose or inadvertently, has made other people laugh. Right. You know, whether, whether it's, you know, getting hit in the head by a coconut falling out of a tree and people went, ha, 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 or they did it meaningfully. They meant to be funny. But everyone has been funny at some point in their life, which is why when you go on stage, the thought bubble that I see in the audience is make me laugh. Yeah. And they're sitting there like this with their arms folded, defensive. Right. Yeah. And some people want to laugh. But a lot of people at any club that you'll ever play, open mic or headlining in Vegas, are sitting there saying, make me laugh. And, and they don't realize it. It's because they've been funny. Because when people talk about, when, when men read about what women want in a man, right. certainly in America in the 20th century, the first thing they want is someone who's funny. Right. You know? A head of compassion, a head of is nice to waiters and, you know, and, and school children, ahead of all those things, you know, nice to his mother, all whatever. It's, I want someone who's funny. So the pressure is on who's ever on that stage, which is why I love and respect anyone who does it. And for someone like you, who's approaching it and doing it, you know, and you're not 22 at a club, right. surrounded by other 22 year olds, you're doing it now, that's balls, my friend. And I'm, I'm just, thrilled that you're doing it well thank you i couldn't right now i can't not do it yeah like, and that's the point of any creative endeavor yeah i mean I, and that has always been you know for me that's always been what happens is i reach a boiling point with something and i can't not do it anymore and so then it becomes my new focus yeah and now my new focus is comedy i just i love it i'm loving the art form it's the only books i want to read are comedy books I and mean, that's how i know that i've tipped is when i start creating a wish list and even more buying things off of it on Amazon. Sure. You know, sure. Um, and it's, I've only read comedy books for the last year and I have a, you know, 30 yoga books that haven't been cracked because there was a time when I was all about yoga. Sure. And, um, the secret is to find balance. Yeah. Well, <laughs> a little yoga, a little, a little yoga, comedy. Right. Well, I, I, yeah, I know when I went to India and I was studying at the Iyengar Institute and, I should have been reading his books. I was reading the biography of Steve Jobs at that time. I just, I had to get through it. I brought this 800 page book with me to India and I was halfway through when I arrived. And so he I, was one funny guy. Yeah. <laughs> when he so, wasn't screaming at everybody to design things better and faster and with, with smoother edges. Yeah. He yeah. was funny. He was hysterical. So, all right. So you're in San Francisco, you're writing jokes for people. What blows my mind, because I've been doing this for less than a year, and there are times that I think I'm the king of the world and times that I think I'm making the biggest mistake of my life, and I think if I wasn't experiencing both of those, I couldn't call it comedy. And how did you do it for five years, and why did you stop? Okay, that's a great question. Uh, I did it for five years because I enjoyed it. My problem, and I enjoyed selling material, I, I liked the camaraderie, I liked the world of other comedians. Okay. 
You know, I really enjoyed being out in the clubs at night because of the people in it. You know, ideas are being exchanged. It's like it was a city. Right. And what do cities do? Cities create the culture, you know, because it's a group of diverse people and a free exchange of ideas. That's what it was. Right. And we were a city within a city and everybody was seemingly, you know, four or five years, you know, from the oldest to the youngest. Uh, it was competitive. And, you know, having been an athlete younger in my younger days, I liked the idea of competition. Um, I'm not one of those people who says competition is evil. No. Competition where you don't respect your opponent. Competition where you hurt, hurt people. That's bad. Right. But competition in and of itself serves to make you better. You know, if you're not jealous of people, if you just say, this guy's better than me. How do I get to there instead of this guy's better than me? How can I hurt him? Right. You know, same thing in sports, same sure. thing in anything. Anyway, the reason I ultimately left the stand-up world in, within the first five years, within the five years, you know, I had worked up, I was emceeing shows, you know, with five comics um, where I got to do, you know, 10 minutes to start and then I would do five minutes in between. Then I was one of the three comics instead of the MC, And it was a blast. I loved it. Traveled up and down the peninsula, San Francisco, East Bay. It was great. I loved it. But there are two things about me that just didn't fit into that world. I don't like staying up late at night. Mm. You know, you said you may go on tonight at 1230. Yeah. I did that, you know, for those five years. Right. You know, certainly the first two or three. And... I'm one of those people, I'll, I'll explain, you know, when I first got telling and was writing for people in Los Angeles, I don't like being out late at night. I also don't drink. I hate the taste of beer. I'm the person who takes a sip and makes that face. <laughs> and I wasn't going to drink anything beyond that. And I hate cigarette smoke. Right. And this is 1976. Everybody Everyone's was smoking in the club. So you're in an enclosed space. It's hot. Everybody's drinking. And it's two o'clock in the morning and you first are getting your first five minutes. And I thought, you know, this isn't sustainable. This is not sustainable just for how I want to live. Yeah. And I said, what do I want to do? What do I feel much better doing? I like the idea of just being alone with the typewriter, you know, an IBM Selectric at the time, you know, and then I'm alone with the computer. I, the blank page didn't scare me. Right. And before I left San Francisco, I knew I had to write spec scripts because I knew I could write for comedians. You know, I'd get to meet somebody and that ultimately is what happened. But I needed to write scripts. And in college, I studied for two years with Israel Harvitz, who's a great playwright, New Yorker, the son of Adam Harvitz. And I studied with John Guar, who was a great Broadway playwright. And... As a kid, I grew up in the Bronx, you know, we didn't have a lot, but we had a cousin who was a violinist in the Broadway orchestras in the pits. And every weekend, he'd get two house seats for Saturday, two for Sunday. I have an older brother. My mother would take him Saturday. Sunday, he'd give me the sport jacket. <laughs> and my mother would take me to the Sunday matinee. And as a kid, I grew up going to every Broadway show there was, whether my Uncle Benny, my cousin Benny was in it or not, you know. Right. And... I love the theater. I mean, on shows I was on where you'd pitch like song parodies from Broadway shows or, or shows, you know, half the people would say, so what kind of homosexual are you? You know, you know more Broadway than the gay guy, you know? 
And I'd say, I grew up going to the theater. I love the theater. I, I think what they do is beyond compare. Right. You know, because they're making that same show every night, but it's different. And they're, on, they're, they're, they're like 1A. Stand-ups are my, my favorite, bravest people in show business. My second favorite, bravest people in show business are theater actors, stage actors and yeah. actresses. Yeah, yeah. But I stopped because I wanted to write longer forms. I wanted to write screenplays. I wanted to write teleplays. And I wrote one of each so I could have something to show an agent in L.A. as a spec script. So I had a spec half hour and a spec uh, hour, a spec film. And did, did you feel like um, you got better? I mean, were you, when, were you performing successfully when you were, during that five years or were you continuing to fail? There was no doubt that I was getting better, but there was also no doubt that my heart was in it less and less hmm. because I, I honestly, I love the guys, you know, I loved the life, but the life included hours I hated right. and environment I hated. Yeah. It was just people talking about comedy, going on stage, making people laugh, getting off stage, talking about comedy some more in a, a more conducive environment for what I thought was, I won't even say the word healthy, just I didn't like it. I don't yeah. like smoke. I don't like drinking. Yeah. I don't like late nights. Yeah, that's what I'm running into that same thing now. I don't mind late nights, yeah. but smoking, I don't really drink and I have to go out of my way to drink and now I've started meditating again, so I'm totally not drinking because those two don't coexist at all. And um, every time I buy a really good bottle of alcohol, I start meditating. And that's the end of the alcohol. I'm sitting in my freezer, wasted, which is not a huge problem. Yeah. But, but that's the issue. I mean, I, I don't... Um, like, I'm, I have made really good friends with one of the comics. He's 25. You'll meet him tonight. He's a good. nice kid. Good. He's a really great guy. He, he shall remain nameless on the show. Oh, his name's Nick Taylor. And he's a terrific guy. And... and, uh, and he and I carpooled down to Greenville once and have been buddies ever since. You nice. know? And, and uh, I just bought him for his birthday. I just bought him this, this book that someone recommended to me about how to write comedy. Even though they say it's something you can't learn, like you have to, I guess you have to have a certain amount of funny in you to get away with it. And in addition to that, there are some technical skills that, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. It, it'll only make your life easier if you yeah. learn them. I hope there there are you know not to call them theories and make people think it's a science, but you know, it, all of life is a story. All of life has an ABC, a beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. A joke has a big a beginning and a middle and end simply because there's a setup, there's a pause, and there's a punchline. Right. That's an ABC. Right. So yeah, it can be learned. And they talk about this other thing too, the map, which is you know I for, I forget what. The M and the P are the A is audience, and it, I think M is material, A is audience, and I forget what P is. Maybe it's the personality of the comic persona. Like that. Persona, yeah. Um, and and they talk about how you know that triangle has to work. So you need to know your audience. So you pick the right material, and you have to know who you are, and and you have to know who you are. Yeah. So I wish I knew what the three were to be. Well, we just made it up. Talking about it clearly, but two of them. Yeah. Um, I just had an example of that the other night where I was at the comedy store in LA, which was fucking amazing. I mean, I was on the same stage as all the greatest comics in the world have, have, uh, performed. And I don't know if there's anybody who hasn't performed at the comedy store at least once. Yeah. 
And I read that book, I'm Dying Up Here, and that's mm-hmm. all about the comedy store. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a, te- a series now on either Netflix or... No, Showtime, I think. Because all the world is superheroes or comedians. Superheroes or comedians. That's all that matters. And Deadpool showed that you put them together... Oh my god, that and movie was so good. Gold. Yeah, I loved it. That movie was so good. And his lines were great. His lines were great. As a stand-up, he was brilliant. No, he was terrific. And just everything about the pacing of that film. I love it when you're kind of in the action, they break and he says something funny and then goes back to the action. Yeah. The visual it, jokes where they say the director's an asshole when they Oh, you know, the whole the, yeah, the whole just intro. Written on screen. Yeah, brilliant. yeah, yeah. That I've never seen never seen that no, film before. No. Yeah, some dude thought thought directed <laughs> by thought some that this director's an asshole. Yeah, you well that's the thing. Yeah. You see his name, oh that guy's an asshole. And then people shh. So, yeah, they did it all for you. So, um, so I got on stage at the comedy store and it was a dream come true. I mean, there's 200 people that show up, 16 get picked. It's totally random. And I am just beside myself. There's I'm a an nervous 8% wreck. chance that you'll get picked. Yeah. I mean, I just did the math quickly. Yeah. 8% chance. And whereas a couple nights ago, I'd gone to another similar lottery. There's a, like a 30 to 50% chance and I did not get picked. So that's a one in a 12 and a half chance. Yep. 12 and a half comics. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like Jim Carrey in Dumb and Dumber. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> and so, but I did, I got, I got picked, I got up and my first couple, um, my first like 20 seconds on stage, it was unbelievable. Like the, first of all, the guy pronounced my name wrong, you know, and, uh, he's like, Jason Scolder. And I got up there, I was like, it's shoulder actually. And everybody laughed. And, and then I said, you know. I said, I, I noticed that I'm one of the only comedians who wears a hat. And I was like, well, except the guy before me. He had a hat on. And then they thought that was funny. And I was like, I'm killing at, at the, uh, the comedy store. And then I got into my material and I had picked completely the wrong material for this audience. Um, I've started this whole bit about, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit where I'm pretty clearly a straight guy, but have a questionably homosexual experience. You know, did that or did that not happen? I'm asking that question. The audience is asking that Mm -hmm. question. Every man starts to ask that question of himself. What would I do in that situation? It's very uncomfortable, but I'd like to think very funny. It does really well here in the South where they, you know, probably because they hate queers. So they think it's funnier. There I was in West Hollywood where there's a large gay population or at least a sympathetic straight population did not go well. And then I got into this longer joke, which I now know you don't do if you only have three minutes. And, <laughs> and uh, not only wasn't it working particularly well, because I had already lost them from the mm-hmm. first one, but I didn't even get to the end of it. And, you know, one of my favorite lines in that particular joke is that I, you know, confront this guy who's a black belt in nonviolent communication. And anybody who knows what nonviolent communication is, and it's huge in Asheville, that's a funny bit. Like, just that idea, because that doesn't exist... And you think that based on the confrontation that he might punch me based on what I said. Mm-hmm. And instead he, he goes all soft and you hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. When I said that, they're like, they're just like, what does that mean? Like no one knew what nonviolent communication was. And then they hadn't lit me. They forgot to light me. And then they just started playing the mute. They like flipped on light and then started playing the music. Like you're over your time. I was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to leave you with that, unfortunately, because I didn't want to be a jerk and mm-hmm. stay on stage because I didn't want to make sure. enemies of anyone sure. at the club. And so I got off. But it was, uh, I mean, it was the greatest, worst experience of my career. Listen, again, but you're to be applauded. I mean, I, I have to tell you that as you're telling me these things, 
all of my training and my life in the business is thinking of how to make it better. Right. You know, and to say to you, Jason, come here, let's talk. You know, like Bobby went over to me. Yeah. And his was, I'll do it. You know, Slayton right. will do it. And I'll say, if they don't laugh at the nonviolent communication line, I have the line for that. And the line is, you know what? You're not laughing. Somewhere Martin Luther King is howling. Somewhere <laughs> Mahatma Gandhi is going, ah! <laughs> <laughs> so pick a nonviolent communication yeah. king. Yeah. Right, yeah. You know, and, and also, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm it's such okay. an asshole. Uh, he pronounced the name Jason Skolder. And you should have come out. You should have come out. See, that's how we talk. Yeah, we okay. have a better way. That's what right. you did is crazy. You're wrong. Listen to me, booby. Anyway, and you have to know Yiddish. <laughs> if someone calls you booby, it's not grandma. It means I love you. Yeah, I, I, I took it as a... Anyway. Oh, no, no, no. Anyway, um, uh, Jason Skolder, you, you, know, you come out and you say, you know, that's not how my name is pronounced. It's Jason. <laughs> and change the first name. Because change right, the right, easy yeah, name. Right, 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 right. Yeah, like you right. That's funny. Yeah, I would that I would not have thought yeah, of that. Well, you were upset. He pretty mispronounced your name. So, yeah. you know, your everybody's first thought is, "Oh, that you know what? That's my my theory of writing comedy." And I mean that. Right. When I was writing material for people, when I was writing jokes in the scripts I was writing, you know, when I was pitching, you know, as a writer producer on shows, and people would ask me, you know, like where did that come from? Where did that come from? My theory, which it is, Monty Python my theory of writing comedy is never write the first joke. And by the first joke, I mean the first joke you think of. Right. Like immediately. It also means someone else can think of it. It also means that people in that audience who don't even do what you do may have thought of it. Right. Your job as a professional, write the second joke. If you can make a life of writing the second joke, you'll make a great living in comedy. If you can add the third joke now and then, you know, like like seventy percent second joke, thirty percent third joke, right? Then you're then you're a genius, right? Because really, it's hard, right? It's hard. It's hard for people who do it because the easy way is first joke. And you know that's such a. I love that. Write the second joke. I really really like that. Here's a couple reasons why I like it. Now that I'm doing more comedy. And even before I started doing it, like I would be watching when I was writing screenplays and stuff like that. I wrote a couple of them and um, I started to know what line was going to come next. Mm -hmm. And that's one is, you know, I'm getting better at writing and these are good writers and that's the right line. Mm -hmm. The other is now that I've heard you say that that could be the first joke, so to speak. That could be the first line. And so that's anyone, you know, if I'm thinking it then it's not the best line. And now I'll see a lot of comedians and I'll know exactly where they're going. And some of that comes from just being around it more. Absolutely. And it's, so it's not necessarily to their detriment that they went there. But this idea, I, there's just nothing better than being truly surprised. Um, um, and it doesn't mean the first joke is bad. No. The it's first just joke may be one. great. Yeah. But you can get away with it. But you can't get away with the first joke for a, for a career. Correct. Right. Not yeah. anymore. And the, the earlier you start thinking in terms of the second joke, right. the second joke, it also helps you in just the, the, uh, the, the time you spend in the creation of things. You won't be happy with the first joke. Right. It'll right, make right. you laugh. Right. It may make you tell people on the laugh and you'll say, I'm going to keep working on this. Right. That's just the discipline of writing comedy, I think. Yeah. Searching for that second and third joke. 
Okay, so now I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. Um, because when I sent you that, I don't, know if, I don't know if I sent you the video or the audio, but anyway, I sent you my first successful set. It's about 15 minutes. Um, it was, it, it was, it went really, really well uh, in context, right? Mm -hmm. I wasn't in front of 2,000 people in LA where they inundated with comedy. You know, I was in a little smoky bar in Tennessee. But nevertheless, I broke all through to them. <laughs> they, allow, they allow smoking still in Tennessee, where they, they allow elephants. cross burning. <laughs> yeah, they allow a lot of things in Tennessee. So, um, and I'm going there next to a different part of Tennessee next week. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. So, uh, your comment was when I said, "What did you think?" And I am very interested in what you think. We don't have to go too into detail mm -hmm. on it now, but just in general, because I, I know you have a lot of experience around this. Um, you said it was very traditional. I still don't really understand what that means. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have to think back. You have to think back. I know. But I, I know what I mean by traditional. Okay. Um, by traditional, I meant it felt like, I mean, obviously you were starting. And sure. I wasn't incorporating everything I should have been thinking about. But I was thinking about when I said traditional, it could have been done by a lot of people at any time. Hmm. And just in, in a large general sense. Right. And from knowing you and from knowing you, how you embrace things and how you, you know, you dive head first. It just seemed like what I was hearing was not like this is Jason shoulder material. Do you know what I mean? Right. It didn't seem it was that it was personal yet. And that's also my problem in that I wanted more from you because I know how good you can be. Right. And when I said it, sound, it was too traditional, I'm basically saying, now that I'm thinking more about it, that you're not who you are yet. Right. You know, yeah. and, and I should have discounted what I said by saying, I realize it's your first time on stage. And instead I was wishing, giving you more credit, thinking you should have known better when I should have thought, he's got to learn how to do this. Right. You know, and, but that's what I meant. Yeah, well, no, I, I was just curious what it meant. And, and um, I, I've let a few... First of all, that wasn't my first time on stage, just mm -hmm. to be clear. That was my first 15 minutes. That was like oh. the first time I put together... I, used, I, I playfully referred to it as my greatest hits because <laughs> it was three months of material. Okay. And, and, uh, and, but it was like I put together the stuff that I felt was the best that I'd written. Mm-hmm. And let's make no bones about the fact that I sincerely hope I'm not still doing that material in two years. I hope I've grown way past that. But at that point, that was the best I had come up with. And, um, and so I shared it with you. I shared it with only a handful of people, partly because I'm protective of it, because I have this ridiculous sense that everyone's going to have to come see me live. If you have to come see me live, I don't want to give it away, you know. Um, and... I am about to do a pretty big show in, in uh, Hendersonville in a couple weeks. I'm doing 15 minutes twice. That truly will be my greatest hits, volume one. And some of that material... Live at yeah, uh, Some of that material I'm already planning to retire after that. I just want to document it on film with 100 people in the audience. Like the best shot I have at having it succeed. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to let it go because a lot of it is... Stuff I need to let go for other Can methods. I suggest something that you might do? Sure. If you know the material you're going to do, okay, and you know it's worked in the past, and it's worked time and time again. Right. 
you might look at this chunk of material, this chunk of material, and think of something new to add. Like right. do the material. Right. But now do the second do joke. Do the second joke, yeah. You know, so you've got all the first jokes. Right. You know, and maybe you've done a few second and third jokes, but now's a perfect time where since you know it better and you know the first joke, first joke, first joke, now see if you could put in a topper. Right. You know, which in, in, in effect is the second joke. Right. You know, the, if the premise is good, right? And, and my, my theory of improv and stand-up, buy the premise, buy the bit. Right. Okay. If I don't buy the premise, I'm tuning out. Right. Which I find very often now with, with what passes for comedy is much absurdist crap. Yeah. But it's not even absurdist in, a, in an artsy way. No, it's just... It's just lunacy. Right. And considering the world is falling apart... I think we owe, we owe the audience and ourselves specifically to talk about that right. in a funny way. Yeah, yeah. So um, I like that. That's a good idea for me to use this as an exercise to write the second joke. Yeah, because you'll um, still get the laughs on the first one. It's, right. It's, it's your greatest hits. <laughs> They're amazing. Yeah. So, uh, well, it's, it's funny. I've, heard, I've been through so much and the comedy has been sort of a therapeutic tool for me as well as just a joy and and I can feel that I also need to kind of re release some of the um, torture I've been going through emotionally. And since some of this material is about that, continuing to do the material is keeping me locked in that space. And I'm ready to let that go. So I'm gonna momentously like I, I want I want to I, Sarah. I, what's the word? I don't I don't want it to just kind of slip away. Mm -hmm. I, I want to. Bring it out like an art exhibition and then, you know, release that body of work and move on to my next series of paintings. Um, but I like the second joke idea. And um, and I just wanted to say, and then we'll move on because I don't like this to be about me necessarily. Um, I don't have guests on so we can tell, what do you think of me? <laughs> but uh, I did share that set with another friend of mine and I told her that... I said, this guy I shared it with, he's got a lot of experience. He said it was traditional. I don't know what he means by that. And her response was, she said, you know, there are a couple jokes that you did that are so Jason, you know? And then she said, I would look at your material and, and say, you know, what are these jokes aren't really you? And I'd get rid of those. And that's kind of what I hear you saying now yes. that you're sort of expanding yes. the way you're yes. saying it. So I thought that was interesting when you, when you kind of had a chance to say more than you did in a text at six in the morning because I'm always waking you up like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm alive and kicking in North Carolina. What's up in LA? Uh, so, so that really fit. And so when you start hearing the same thing from different respected sources, then it, it sure. takes on sure. more. Then, you, then you're silly if you don't think. Yeah, at least give I it a shot. make this better? Right, yeah. And that's, that's how we should think about anything we do. You know, how can I make my parenting better? How can I make, you know, my interpersonal relationships better? I rewrite every time I go to go out to perform. I rewrite my entire set before I go out. I rewrite every time I'm going to see any woman I'm seeing. <laughs> I'm thinking about have I said this before? <laughs> How many days did have I, I been tell on? her this about myself? You have to look at like this. You have to know what you say on first dates, second dates, third dates. So you know, yeah. Uh, you, our mutual friend, uh, whose house you're staying at yes. right now. My God, he tells, he gets fixated on a story or whatever he's dealing with. And I'll hear about it for three to four weeks. <laughs> and I used to speak to him daily. Now I talk to him every couple of weeks. So I only hear the same stories once or twice. I literally used to hear them five or six times mm -hmm. or more. 
and uh, he's always caught up in some hamster wheel of some drama in his life. But, uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. So, okay. So, it's 1981. Mm-hmm. You've done comedy for five years. You've stopped because you... Uh, I want to do what's next. You want to do what's next, and the environment isn't working for yes. you. And, um, and I had sort of started to say that I'm having a similar experience where I'm twice as old as everybody, and the only twice as old person I'm friendly with is this kid, Nick. <laughs> um, the rest of them, I don't know. I don't know. I don't totally care what they think of me. I would like to have more friends because it's more fun when there's more people to sure. to kibitz with. But I sit in the audience and enjoy the comedy, which I shouldn't do if I want to be respected as a comedian, apparently. I should be outside killing myself slowly with alcohol and cigarettes because that's where you make friends with everyone. But But the other thing that dealing with comedians is... I mean, to, to speak in generalizations, but to also, there's some truth to them. A lot of comedians are unable to have loving, empathetic relationships, whether it's with a member of the opposite sex, the same sex, or a friendship. Hmm. Because a lot of comedians are just consumed with the idea of success. Hmm. And when you move to LA, success is a show. Success is you're the comic relief on a show if you're not the lead in the show. Right. You know, success is you go to Largo and like Sarah Silverman and friends invite you on stage with them. You know, you're one of their friends. Right. But by the same token, a lot of those people are very damaged and the idea of friends and community don't exist. Right. And, you know, you find that out as you're in it longer. There are also wonderful people who will be your friends for life, who will not just house sit for your cats, but, you know, who will be the people if you die, your children will go to them. Right. You know, it's like any group. It's like any group of people. But far too many comedians, it's not that they're not nice people. They're not thoughtful people. Right. Because they're consumed with themselves, you know, and getting ahead. And if getting ahead on the comic ladder is not telling other people that there are showcases, if getting ahead on the comic ladder is saying, you know, I met this agent the other day and never revealing the name or the fact that they're looking for other people. Hmm. It's because ultimately it's five guys trying out for a baseball team and only one's going to make it. You know, oh, you got hurt. That's a shame. Instead of, oh, you got hurt. You know, there's this liniment. You know, there's this exercise. Right. You know, there's being a mensch all the way through or just being in it for you and not caring about the other stuff. Well, I've chosen the path of uh, not selfishness, which for me is a new path. And, and not that I've ever deliberately been selfish, because all I think of, I, I, I think I only think of other people, but the feedback I get from other people is that's not exclusively the case. Sure. And Well, we're, we all fail. We're all contradictions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I'm saying it generously. I don't give money to every homeless people I see. And by saying every, I'm letting people think that like, well, he gives money to eight out of 10. Yeah. No, more like two out of 10. <laughs> that's, that's, that's still a lot, given the fact that you live around a lot of homeless people. Can I tell an Asheville story? Yeah. I'm sorry. I have to tell an Asheville Please, story. bring it. And hopefully it won't change things, but it's the Asheville story that people, when I tell it in LA and all over, they love. There's a guy in Asheville who wears a Vietnam veteran's cap. Oh, yeah. Okay. He all has right. one leg. Yeah. One is cut off at the knee. And one day I was standing there, I was waiting for somebody to show up. And he's asking for money, and I'm standing there, and I'm looking at my watch. No, I didn't have a watch. But uh, I knew that I would be there for about 10, 15 minutes. So, you know, I say, how you doing? Where in Vietnam were you? Or I right. tried to be cool and say, so where in Nam were you? Right. 
And he said, I wasn't in Vietnam. And I said, you know, you wear the hat and you have one leg and you're kind of telling people that you lost your leg in Vietnam. He said, oh, I know. <laughs> so it's just very interesting to me. So yeah. I, I kept going because we're just friendly. Sure. And I said, so how'd you lose your leg? He said, I used to have a gardening business here in Asheville. And one day the lawnmower I was pushing ran over a clothes hanger. And the clothes hanger, you know, metal, yeah. went flying. Tip of it penetrated my shin bone. So he had a, a clothes hanger, metal, metal clothes hanger, penetrated his shin bone. Of course, he pulled it out. Of course, he didn't see a doctor. It got gangrenous or mm. gangrenous, however you say that. It's a good word. And he went to the hospital. He took his leg off. Ugh. And I said, I'm really sorry about that. But don't you think people would just feel sorry for you in the same way and maybe help you out monetarily if you didn't? fool us into thinking you lost it in Vietnam. And he'd say, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> he knew you wear, yeah. you wear a Vietnam hat and you have one leg and you look like you're of a certain age. I always assumed he was in Vietnam. Yeah, he almost is too young to have been in Vietnam yeah. too. But once he told me that he lost his leg and still he lost his leg. Oh, no, which it, yeah. I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody no. and I, I couldn't imagine life with that yeah. and what it does. But... Once he told me that, I've never given him money since. Because he wasn't honest about it. Not because you feel less empathy yeah. for... And, and I took it... No, absolutely. And I took it to the nth degree. Like, there are lots of guys who were in Nam who lost more than their legs. Right. You know, like my father, who was a combat Marine, said the real heroes don't come back. Right. I'm choking up. Talking about my dad. But, but it just bothered me. It yeah. still bothers me. I talk about it all the time. You know, and I, I've been here, you know, eight, ten days. I've seen him five times. And I just can't give him money. It's like I wish, I don't wish he had lost his leg in Vietnam, but I wish his story was honest. Right. And, and I think that goes hand in hand with, I think, what I want from people. and of my, It's what I want from myself. It's hard for us to be honest all the time in any of our relationships. And I wanted this guy to be honest, even though I'm not, I don't even hold myself to that standard. So now I'm learning something about myself. Well, you know, we, you know, we all do the best we can. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about somebody using, um, it's almost like, I want to call it cheap. You know, it's like, they know that's going to get sympathy and, and they know their audience. In this case, people walking up down the sidewalk, tossing money at the guy, feeling socially responsible for doing so. Um, they see the hat, they see the leg, they don't question it. They don't even look at his age and be like, he's borderline too young to have been a numb. But I don't know. I don't know how old the guy is. He's, he's in pretty rough shape and he's a nice guy. I mean, yeah. the, the, the nice thing about him is he always maintains, you know, some joy, but also, uh, uh he clearly has a hard life. Yeah. And so, um, I've had other people who are like, give me something and if I don't uh, you know then they get mad I had a great this is my favorite Asheville story it was the day after Thanksgiving I had a big Thanksgiving party and for some reason like five people brought pumpkin pie and so I just had too much pumpkin pie and so I decided the next day I was going to give away one of these pies 
And I used to have an office downtown and I, and I would park pretty far from the office. And usually I would ride my bike from my car to the office and everyone thought I rode my bike to work. <laughs> So they all thought I was like super green and they all had this so photo. It was so funny. And I never realized, I wasn't trying to lie about it. I was like, I'm just walking, driving here from my, or riding here from my car. Because when I ride home, it's a, it's, it's a 30 second bike ride or a 10 minute walk. And at the end of the night at two in the morning, I don't want the 10 minute walk. And, and so uh, anyway, that was one thing. But that day, I didn't bring my bike. I brought the pie. And I walked up the street, and, and the bus depot is right near the post office. Yeah. And so I figured, and there's always homeless people around, and I'm looking for homeless people to give this pie to. And I see this woman and a daughter, and I think, oh, maybe they're homeless, you know? But then, and they were like sitting down in the bushes. But then I realized they weren't homeless at all. I got closer. They were just sitting in the bushes. They were just sitting there. The well, no, no, no. This is in the morning. Oh. This is the next day. This, oh, okay. is like, this is like 10 in the morning, okay. uh, the day after Thanksgiving. Post Thanksgiving. Yeah. So, and it's freezing. I mean, it is so cold. I, I was going to give it to them, but then I realized they weren't homeless. I didn't want to insult a right. non-homeless person by right. handing them this pie. So I had never spent this much time looking for a homeless person before. And I walked around, you know, Pritchard Park, <laughs> where there's usually like a bunch of homeless people here, hanging homeless, out. Homeless, yeah. homeless, here, homeless, homeless, here, homeless, homeless, nobody. And then I saw this guy and, you know, one pant leg was longer than the other. I looked at his shoes. Everything was dirty about him. And I was like, I think I found my guy. I followed him for a while and I watched him kind of look down into a garbage can. I'm like, he's got to be homeless. Only yeah. homeless people would be looking in a garbage can. And so I kind of caught up to him and I said, um, I said, hey, excuse me. Uh, I'm just, I wanted to offer this to you um, because I have this, I have too much pie and it's a day after Thanksgiving and and he's like, thanks, man. I was like, well, it's huge. So, you know, share it with your friends. Your and other homeless like, friends. You know, and, and he's like, yeah, man, I totally will. It's great. And I said, I got to tell you, I've been walking around for the last 15 minutes <laughs> looking for someone to give this pie to. And he looked up at me and he said, some days it's just hard to get rid of a pie. <laughs> great line. I just God. couldn't believe it. It was so That's great. That's philosophy. Yeah. That's yep. that's something like one of the ancient, you know, uh, teachers would say. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to give a pie away. <laughs> I like that. That's a t-shirt. Look and see if that's... So yeah. Some days it's hard to get rid of a pie. Get rid of a pie. Yeah. That was, uh, that was really good. I have one other homeless story where I had parked and I didn't have my bike. I was walking and I must not have checked myself in the mirror before I left home that day. I was carrying like a backpack and another bag and I was walking up from, from my car. And normally when I walk past the homeless population in Asheville, they look at me like they want something from me and mm -hmm. I don't really make eye contact with them, whatever. This day I walked by several of them and they were like, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> and um, they were being so nice to me. And I was like, what is going on? You know, and one guy's like, hey, bro, there's uh, Wendy's is giving away hamburgers up in Pack Square. And, and I'm like, okay, man, thanks. I know I'm like, why in the world is this happening? And I get to the front door of my building and I see myself in the reflection of the glass. And I was just a wreck, like nothing matched. And I had bad. Shit was buttoned wrong. Yeah, yeah, totally. I was a fucking disaster. And I looked like a homeless person. My hat was on sideways. It was like, not sideways, like that's gangbanger. Hysterical. It was like falling off my head. Yeah. That's hysterical. Yeah, that was a priceless morning. Yeah.
So that was, yeah. And then meanwhile, you know, I'm on my way to work. <laughs> it was, it was too much. Homeowner. Homeowner. Uh, yeah. Homeowner. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my favorite homeless joke is I went to, uh, my favorite homeless joke. That's a horrible sentence. Yeah. But I was at Comic Relief a number of years ago in LA. Did you ever go to that? No. Um, that was the first time I saw Bobby Slayton live and he was one of the only comics that I actually remembered his, his routine. Because he's not like most of them. He's not like most of them, and he's so offensive. He was so funny, though. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remembered him and Richard Jenny. And, yeah. and, and this next joke I'm going to tell you, which was by um, the guy who played Miles on uh, Frasier. Played Frasier's brother. Isn't his name? Oh, Niles. 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 Yeah, not Miles. David Hyde Pierce. David Hyde Pierce. And he got up and he said, uh, I'm, you know, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm sorry Marist couldn't be here. She's at a fundraiser for the second homeless. <laughs> <laughs> very funny I thought that was funny yeah very funny uh, so that to me is the second joke yes absolutely yeah absolutely that's funny so that's my favorite homeless joke uh, and that works very well in Los Angeles yes you know, Yo, totally to yeah right audience. oh yeah yeah totally yeah I was at UCLA I mean there were too many people in that audience who could relate either they had second or third homes or wanted them do you remember the year that uh, Christoph Waltz was nominated for Inglorious Bastards yes. as the Jew Hunter, mm-hmm. and he was introduced by Steve Martin. And Steve Martin introduces him, his, his, not him, but he introduces the fact that he's one of the five nominees oh, okay. for Best Supporting Actor. And he said, our next nominee, Christoph Waltz, nominated for his role in uh, Tarantino's uh, Inglorious Bastards. I'm sure it's online. Yeah. And he says, uh, in the movie, he plays a character called the Jew Hunter where his job is to seek out and hunt down Jews, wherever they may be. And he says, Christoph! And he, just <laughs> he puts his arms out. Spreads like, here they are! <laughs> and it was hysterical. Oh, God, that's so great. <laughs> oh, man. Steve and, you Martin know, is... And in the, in the corner of the screen that we're watching at home is Christoph Waltz in his seat watching right. the introduction. Right. And, I mean, he just... Broke up laughing. Oh, sure, yeah. Because that was a brilliant line. That is brilliant. Christoph. <laughs> oh, God, Steve Martin is so great. Have you read his book? I read his book, uh, Born Standing Up. No, I never read that one. I read the, the books that he did, like the Woody Allen books of short little stories. Oh, yeah, funny the shop, stories. shop girl and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, like, you know, Woody Allen without feathers and things like that. So I oh, read okay. Steve's stuff like that. Okay. But I haven't read Born Standing Up. Born Standing Up is good. It's, I'm sure. It's cool. Sure. That's a book that really... Should be an audiobook with Steve Martin narrating it because or Martin Short narrating. Or more, yeah. Oh my God, Martin Short. The two of them, their relationship is mm-hmm. so fantastic, and I can't decide if I like watching Steve Martin more or like watching Martin Short talk about Steve Martin more. Like I don't know which one of those two things is funnier. But the interesting thing is that they're both such human beings. Oh yeah. They're not afraid to basically tell the audience we love each other. Oh totally. We love yeah. each other and we love what we do to each other. Yeah, in a comedic way. Yeah, yeah. And they share it. No, it's yeah. No, they they make fun of each other in the most charming and riotous way. Like, um, I got into watching the celebrity roasts recently. I started watching the Charlie Sheen roast, and and some of the lines are brilliant. Some of the lines are brilliant. A lot of it is pure heinousness, but it led me to going back and watching the old Dean Martin roasts. Now those are funny. Yeah, those are truly well. Those are classic comics, right? I mean, it's not a bunch of young people 
you know, just being nasty. Right. Although, like I said, some of the jokes are just. And great. one day these will be the classic comics. Yeah. Some of them. Yeah. There'll be a book, you Two know, like there's the books by Drew Friedman, you know, uh, old Jews, old Jewish comics, right. more old Jewish comics, even more old Jewish comics. And it's, I know everybody in the books. I'll open up and show people and say, who's Freddie Roman? Freddie Roman. And I'll, you know. Right. Um, they're pretty amazing. Yeah, they're, they're really terrific. I, I like the roasts. I mean, when Joanne was living with me out here, she got me into watching the roasts. Oh, really? The you new know, ones? The, the ones on Comedy Central. Comedy Central, Central yeah. You know, because I, you know, I would, that wasn't my, uh, my, my people. Right. And I watched them and I just, I mean, there's a handful of jokes that are just some of the nastiest, best things I've ever heard. Yeah. And then they're gone. Oh, yeah. That's, that's the beauty of a roast. Yeah, yeah. It's a one-time You laugh joke. at this, this heinous joke, you use the word, and then maybe you repeat it once or twice, and then you forget it. Yeah. Because that's the nature of that thing. Right. So, um, I'm interested in getting back to your story a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, we, got, we, we got through the first five years of your comedy career, and somewhere along the lines, you met your wife. I would like to hear about that. And then in 1981, I guess, did you move five years? So I come to LA, I come here in the spring of 1980 and kind of there <laughs> and get an apartment and somehow material of mine, comedy material, not a script, but comedy material of mine got to someone at William Mars. And the next thing I knew, I was getting a phone call from an agent at William Mars saying that they'd like to meet with me, but rather than meet with the agent, I would meet with one of their comedy clients, a man named Harry Crane. Awesome. Okay. I didn't know the name Harry Crane. Uh, it was before computers. I couldn't look him up on IMDb. It didn't exist. Right. And I mentioned his name to some people and nobody knew. Harry Crane. Anyway, uh, I meet this guy at Nate and Al's. It's like a, a 1950s Hollywood story. <laughs> I'm going to meet an old comedy writer at Nate and Al's. And to me, this is as good as it gets. Right. You know? So I meet Harry Crane. He's about 5'10", thin. You know, he's, he seemed to be like 75 years old. Filled with bile. Hated everybody and everything. Okay, he was still working at 75. He was working for Gary Marshall on all of the Gary Marshall sitcoms, Happy Days, and then everything else. And Harry was the... You know, the Eminence Gris in the back, you know, the old master, people would pitch and Gary would be at the head of the table going like this. And Harry would go, and it didn't get in the script if Harry didn't approve. Mm. I was used to old people, 75 year old people, being like grandfatherly, grandmotherly. You know, they, they had lost all the bile. Right. They were old now. They had making their peace with, with God. They're going to die soon. And... Here's Harry saying, put me in a room with Neil Simon. I fucking break his legs. Harry's shorthand for, I'm funnier than Neil Simon. Right. And he would say that about everybody, even people he theoretically loved and respected. You know, put me in a room with any of them. I break their fucking legs. You know, that's why I'm not in the room with them. That's why I'm in the room. And he would call working for Gary Marshall. He was at an orphanage for the untalented. <laughs> he said, these young people, they sit around, they pitch things. I, my face doesn't crack a smile. They're roaring. Gary looks at me and I'm like, what? what? What was just said was not funny. It was not comedy. It's the absence of comedy. And yet, that's what was in the script. And, you know, he's paying me, so I'm trying to help. But the only way to help would be to kill everyone in the room. <laughs> right. Anyway, Harry Crane meets me at Nate Niles, or I meet Harry Crane at Nate Niles. 
and Harry Crane is holding up pages of my material. And he says, I would have written some of these jokes. Hmm. Which is a compliment. Which is a compliment, but it's a backhanded compliment. Right. And I was feeling pretty good. I thought I was really funny, you know. And I said, you know what? I called him Harry because he was not Mr. Crane. He was Harry, Harry Crane. And he said, you know what, Harry? You didn't write those jokes. I wrote those jokes. You can't just say these are good jokes. Instead, there has to be you would have written some of them. How about all of them? I, I, I put my name on that. Right. I, I think all of them are good. And it was the old Lou Grant story. You know, right. you have spunk. I hate spunk. You know, with Mary Tyler Moore, <laughs> you know, the first episode. And he said, I like you, kid. I like you. Everybody, everybody old, like Bobby Slayton, like me. I mean, we all say things like, I love you. Hey, yeah, kid, you're great. Ah. And we sat there and we had corn beef. We had pastrami. Neither one of us cared how fatty it was at that point in time. He was 75. I thought he'd live forever. He was filled with bile. And he was deathly funny. Hmm. He was one of the funniest people I've ever met. And to be funny at 75 in a huge way, right. in that stick that needle in way, to me was astounding. And then, you know, he had written for everybody. You know, he wrote Martin and Lewis movies. He wrote Jackie Gleason. He, he, he said, I created The Honeymoon, as you know. Hmm. And, you know, there are stories, you know, that he may have created The Honeymooners. Okay. But he also liked taking credit for everything. You know, put me in a room with Gleason. Well, I said, Gleason's dead. He said, put me in a room with him when he was at his best. I break his fucking legs. <laughs> Everybody. Anyway, he says, can you come to Vegas? Uh, we're going to go to Vegas with Alan King. He hired me, hires me on the spot. And I'm thinking, this is the greatest thing that ever happened. Hires me on the spot to go to Vegas to do an Alan King special. It's back in the early 80s when Alan King did a special each year. And part of the special would be the TV board. He'd have, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS. Right. I didn't think there was a Fox in 1980. And it would be 8 o'clock to 11 o'clock. You know, half hour increments, hour increments. And you'd talk, you'd make jokes about the shows that were coming back. And you'd make jokes about the new shows. So it's the TV board. It's like, so we go to Vegas. You know, he says, I know you're recently married. You know, can you come to Vegas for three days? We get a cabana. I think it's at Caesars. And Alan sits behind a desk and we write the show. Can you do it? And I said, yeah, I think so. He said, your wife won't, you know, your girlfriend won't care about it. I wasn't married yet. He said, your girlfriend won't care about it. I said, it's a job. I think she'd be happier that I have a job. So we go to Vegas. Okay, we're in a cabana. And we're in a big room, all over tan furniture. Alan King sitting in a white robe, balls hanging to the floor behind the desk, <laughs> you know, but it's open. And he's got a cigar that's bigger than the biggest cock in porno. And he's sitting there like this, and he's talking like this. Even though he probably didn't talk like that in real life. He's talking like this. Right. Hey, kid, kid. I'm 30 years younger, easy, younger than anyone in the room. Maybe 40 years younger. Okay, 1980, I'm 29 years old. But I'm a young 29. A youthful 29. <laughs> anyway, everybody in that room easily is 62, 64, 72, 75. Okay? We're talking, and... Before we go in the room, I said, Harry, is there anything I should know? He says, don't say anything for three days. And I said, we're only going to be here for three days. He said, you learn a lot by listening and watching us. Okay, and he told me a few things that I learned over time. Yeah. He also said, if you pitch something today, if you hear something we pitch today, if, some, if you ever pitch it again, everybody in that room knows. Mm -hmm. Never pitch anything again that you've already pitched. 
Because if it didn't get in the script that day, we all remember it. And we're going to be pissed that you're bringing it up. You should be pitching new stuff. And he also said, if you have a fix for somebody's pitch, never just say, no, 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 no. How about this? Say, that's great. But if you, and if you add this to it, it's like, it's instead of no, but it's yes. And it's like an improv. Yeah. Anyway. Well, but it's even more important because you're, you don't want to negate what someone's doing. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to tear down another writer. Yeah. Yeah. And Harry loves me. He introduces me to Alan and he said, Harry, I love this kid. You know why? I would have written some of his jokes and he looks at me and he like sneers like he did the same thing to me again. And then he said he played baseball in high school and college. It's about time we have some fucking athletes in this room like me, says to himself about himself, 75 years old. (laughs) And then he tells me that he used to go to spring training with the New York baseball giants. Okay. Okay. Because he wrote for Eddie Cantor and Eddie Cantor was a giant, a giant fan. He wrote for Eddie Cantor when he was 17. Eddie Cantor gave him a birthday gift one year of going to spring training with the Giants. My first day on the show, when we, got, when we leave Vegas and right. go back to L.A., he brings like a box that, that women put their wedding gowns in, uh-huh. you know, with all of the paper, the paper. And he's got a pristine New York Giants baseball uniform from like 1937 wow. that they had given him to wear at spring training. Oh, wow. Anyway, cool. Alan King, uh, after the first day, as we're leaving the room, he says, kid, 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 come here. And he said, why are you talking? <laughs> Harry said you were funny. Harry said you were an athlete. That means you're competitive. That means you'll fight to get your shit in. How come you didn't say anything? He said, I said, Harry told me not to speak for three days. He said, you're going to be here for three days. Fuck Harry. <laughs> so he said, you need to talk up. Okay, these guys will walk all over you. So he's telling me what the room is like. Right. So the next day, I start pitching. People are saying funny things. I'm saying funny things. We get to the two things that Alan wants to do. You know, like that aren't just jokes. He wants to do the TV board, and he wants to do a map of Africa and the Middle East and talk about each country, who the president is, you know, just quick jokes. And I'm thinking, I love this because... Every script I've ever written has a joke about some weird West African country. Right. Okay, just silly, funny stuff. Anyway, we do the TV board, and people are pitching the lamest shit. I mean, they're great comedy writers, not just in their time, but even now, but they're pitching lame shit. And I just start getting into my element. It's like line drive after line drive. Mm. And Alan says, put that in, put that in, put that in. And we get through Monday, and we get through Tuesday. And he says at one point... You know, I don't know why you guys are here. I'm paying you all this fucking money. The kid just did Monday and Tuesday. So I'm thinking, yeah. I love what he's saying, and but he, now these guys hate job. Me. Yeah. Yeah. These guys are never going to hire me again. Right. Anyway, later that night, um, Harry comes up to me and he said, you did fucking great in there. You know, you did great. He's talking, he said, I'm talking to Alan. Alan loves you. He said, now the secret is do it again. Because hmm. we've done this shit every day for years right the secret is not to be funny on Mondays to be funny every day right and I'm thinking I got this I love this I'm an early riser anyway um Harry says to me as we're as after we're talking privately he said Alan wants to know if you want a booze and a fuck (laughs) and I said I'm gonna sound like a child but I don't know what that means 
And Harry said, a booze and a fuck. Do you want a, lick, a you know, a, a bar in your room that's paid for by, right. yeah. by the production? And do you want a girl? And he said, I know you live with a girlfriend, you know, but this is Vegas, you know. I mean, just to make you feel at home, I'm 75. I always get the booze and the fuck. Okay. <laughs> My wife may know about it. Doesn't matter. I'm in Vegas doing a show. I'm getting the booze and the fuck. So I say, you know what? I don't drink. You know, he said, get the booze. We may come in your room to talk. (laughs) (laughs) We want a drink. So he said, I'll tell Alan you want the booze. And then he proceeds to tell me one of the funniest stories I've ever heard. You know, about the fuck part of the booze and the fuck. Right. He said, years ago, he's there with Sinatra. Okay, he was Sinatra's table man. Meaning when Sinatra was on stage... Harry kept the table going. Right. You know, all the the big shots. Eisenhower, you know, Judy Garland, uh, Picasso. Anybody who was a big giant celebrity was at Sinatra's table. And when Frank wasn't there, when he was performing, he needed somebody to keep it all going. Harry was that guy. Wow. I've written a script called Table Man about Harry Crane as a young man, younger, in Vegas in the 50s. That's a great... That would be a great... I know. Yeah. Anyway, so Harry tells me... How long did you write that? Oh, I wrote it years ago. You know, I, I'm you since... pitched it around or... Never pitched it around. Sent it out as a script. My agent sent it around. But I want to update it. Oh, yeah. I think that would do great. Especially because, you know, Frank died since then. And I know. Like, I know. I think you'd have... Oh, and it's black and white. And yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, and you could maybe get Don Rickles to pay... To, I don't know if you want to do it because he's... Too his old own, now. He's, he's his own entity. Okay. Well, anyway. But, but thank you. Thank but, you. But, you know, I mean, that would be great. That would be so great. Um, but listen to the Sinatra Okay, sorry, I got joke. distracted by the. I know, by, I know. No, by it's the a wonderful script you weren't idea. pitching me. I know. Let's hey, make it. Listen to this. Kid, you got great ideas. Harry's, however old he is in the 50s, okay? If he was 17 and 36, he was born in 1919. Right. Okay? And Sinatra says, Harry, booze and a fuck. And Harry says, sure. Okay? So they. They, it's the next day, okay? It's like four in the afternoon when they all wake up. Right. And they're all there. Dean Martin, it's the Rat Pack. Right. Okay? They're all around the table. And Dean Martin says to Harry, so did you fuck the girl we sent to your room last night? And Harry says, no. And none of them can believe it. It's like Dean Martin, right. you know, Peter Lawford, Sammy Davis, Joey Bishop, Frank Sinatra saying, you didn't fuck the girl we sent up to your room? <laughs> and Sinatra says... You know, she was Miss Puerto Rico. You know, she was Miss World. She finished second in the Miss World contest last year. She was like, she's the greatest looking Miss Puerto Rico. She's like 19 years old. You didn't fuck Miss Puerto Rico that we sent to your room? And Harry said, I couldn't fuck anyone who could have fucked Roberto Clemente. (laughs) (laughs) That joke may not mean anything to a million people listening, hearing it, telling it. But if you know who Roberto Clemente was, and just the idea that I couldn't fuck anyone who might have fucked Roberto Clemente, it's just funny. So anyway, Alan is my friend now, and then we're doing the map, and it's a political map. So it's like, what goes on there? It was long before Sunni and Shia, but it was little jokes. And I pitched a whole bunch of jokes, like, you know, a joke that became everybody's joke. Uh, You know, there's the Ivory Coast. You know, it's the only country named after two bars of soap. Um, upper Volta. How can there be an Upper Volta? And this is Alan doing them on television. 
And it's like, why is there a country upper Volta? There is no lower Volta. Why can't it just be Volta? Well, these people were not thinking. Anyway, he did one joke, which was at that point, probably my favorite joke of all time that I pitched to somebody. And it was, there was a country called Rwanda-Burundi. It was one of these times where they combined two countries. Right. And Rwanda-Burundi. And the joke I gave Alan was, Rwanda-Burundi. Didn't she play Aunt Esther on Stanford and Sanford and Son? <laughs> and her name was LaWanda Page. But he laughed like a spit take. Right. Like, <laughs> and the other guys in the room, because they're 75 years old, they're looking at me, they're looking at Alan thinking, he's going to say this on television? This isn't funny. <laughs> and I think it's the best joke I've pitched up until that point. Right. And Alan King loved it. And he said, that's in. And then he said, this was the amazing thing. And this made me feel like a million bucks. But again, he said, everybody can leave. The kid and I will do the map. Wow. And two things. You have to know you're funny. I mean, if you're going on stage right. to do stand-up, you can't just think you're funny. You have to know you're funny. You have to know you can think on your feet. You have to know a few things about yourself. But you can't be too much of an asshole about it. Right. So I knew I was funny. And I knew I could say these funny things about the map of Africa. Right. I knew I could say these funny things about the political situation in the Middle East. And here was a professional comic who I'd seen on Ed Sullivan 15 times, who I'd seen by that, you know, Johnny Carson when I was older, who I'd seen 100 times. And he's telling the other guys to leave. Yeah. I felt uh, 10 feet tall. And then to Harry's credit and the other guy's credit, they immediately hired, hired me on like three other shows, you know, specials. So when I first got there, I was doing Variety, which existed for like another week. <laughs> but the amazing thing was, and this is why I don't like staying out late at night, I'm an early riser. Right. You know, there was a, a line about Ted Williams, the baseball player, the only Ted Williams we know. And it was, he can wake up out of a sick bed and hit line drives. Mm. My first job in LA, you know, at, at, which was simultaneous with, with doing Alan King, I wrote Tonight Show monologues for David Steinberg when he guest hosted. Mm -hmm. And because I hadn't realized that the guest host, the Tonight Show writers didn't write for them. Oh. I said, fuck, we write for Carson. Right. You bring your own writers in. So David, somehow my stuff got to him. I got a call. He wants to meet you at his house in Encino. So I go to visit David Steinberg and I start writing his Tonight Show monologues. And he would sign Tonight Show and Tonight Show guest hosts. They weren't getting 100 grand a week. They were getting Union Scale. So Union Scale at that point was like four fifty a show. Right. And he would sign the check over to me. So that was one of the other ways I started in the business. So it was the Alan King special and a bunch of shows like that. And then writing Tonight Show monologues. And I did it for a bunch of other comics who guest hosted. And here's how I work because I'm an early riser. I would get up. I lived in Hollywood, Fairfax District. I would get up around six o'clock. There was a 24-hour newsstand right across from Cantor's. My world is circumscribed by delis, like all Jews. <laughs> yeah. And I would get the New York Times, the LA Times, uh, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. And because I always wanted that immediacy. And it's the Tonight Show. You, you do a joke about what right. happened yesterday, not Time Magazine from a week ago. Right. And I would write 30 jokes. And I'd start at 6.15 in the morning when I got home. And at 8 o'clock, I'd call a messenger service. And this is before faxes. Right. And you'd call a kid on a crotch rocket, you know, with a carrier courier bag. And I'd get a call from like Steinberg or whoever. 
and it'd be 8.30 in the morning and they'd say, when did you write these? And I'd say, this morning. And they said, no, you knew this shit was gonna happen. And I said, no, this is out of the newspaper. Right. I, mean, I didn't know, I mean, there was no internet. You, know, you didn't know what was gonna be in the paper the next day. I just kept track of what was going on. Right. And then I was a quick read and I would write. It was always 30 jokes, 30 jokes. 30 jokes gave them enough leeway to like not do 20. Right, because they gotta get rid of something. They gotta get rid of most of them. And they all are not gonna be good. Some of them are gonna be first jokes. <laughs> but there were enough that were second jokes and even third jokes where I kept getting calls. Right. You know, doing Tonight Show monologues. And then, you know, you just, you wanna leave the world of variety and you wanna leave the world of writing jokes for people and you wanna get into the world of sitcoms. You wanna write longer form and movies as well. And I just, you know, I had a spec script. I had a spec taxi. That's how long ago this was. I didn't even understand what spec meant. And by that I mean, you should do a well-regarded show that hasn't been on for a long time. Mm. You know, instead of Taxi, it might have been off the air already right. at this point, 1981, 82. So I just, I, I, I wrote that. I wrote another spec script, started getting it out. And the next thing I knew, I was starting to get hired as, uh, you know, a sitcom writer. And, you know, on staff. And, you know, you work as a staff writer and then you're an associate producer and you just keep working yourself up. And, uh, you know, as that's happening, you get better agents as you keep moving up. You know, you get the head of literary at William Morris for a few years when you're writing high. And, you know, you write, I wrote a pilot for eight straight years and they were never shot. It's just the crapshoot, you know, network hires, hires, the network will pay for like 48 pilots right. and they'll shoot 12 of them and they'll, you know, give you three, three of them will get done. And that's just the crapshoot. And it's always been the crapshoot. And then you're also fighting all the fact, the fact that they also paid people $4 million that year to sit at home or in a studio, you know, uh, setting and it's called a studio deal. Right. So when it comes down to, they have two shows to pick from, are they going to pick the show from the guy who's just writing a pilot who was an associate producer on a sitcom or someone who has a $4 million studio deal? Right. You know, who would you rather fail with? Right. Would you rather fail with Diane English who did Murphy Brown or this guy? Right. And it's a no brainer. Even if the Diane English show isn't funny or good. Right. And that's the whole point. If you've watched TV all these years, and I know you have, very few people have more than one really great show in them or even good show. Right. You know, those show, other shows will get on the air, but that's because it's the deal. Right. But, you know, that, that was my life then until 1999. You know, 1996, the last three years I was a consultant, which is the business's way of saying, we don't want you in five days a week. Right. But we can hire three writers or four writers for your salary. But, you know, if you come in one or two days a week to make things better. Right. And the problem is when you're a consultant, number one, the people who are being told you're coming in hate, hate the fact that you. you're right. coming in because right. they're being told the show isn't either funny enough or good enough. Right. And my first day as a consultant, I forget what show it was, but my first day, I remember calling my agent and saying, here's the problem with the job of consultant. I'm being told by everybody, go in and make it funnier. The problem is funnier doesn't mean better. Right. Okay. A lot of these shows that, I'm, that I and every other consultant is being asked to make funnier are like wrong on their face. They right. shouldn't exist as they are. Right. So funnier, funnier does nothing. It's, you know, it's lipstick on a pig, which Sarah Palin made famous. <laughs> By wearing lipstick. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but but 
you know, there were a few years when I worked with my wife. You know, she had been a magazine writer in San Francisco. We worked together. We, uh, my agent called about a show called Jack's Place. It was an hour romantic comedy with uh, Hal Linden. And he called us up to do a rewrite on the pilot. And, you know, and then when the show went, we'd be on it. And we wouldn't get created by credit because we weren't big enough. But it was a great opportunity. And he said they'd really like a couple to do it because it was a romantic comedy. Right. And the way the business works is they don't think that men can write romantic comedies. It's like they can make them funnier. Right. That's the If you work in a male-female couple, it's like everybody assumes he does the jokes, she does the story, the narrative. Hmm. And, and whatever women are saying. And that's just an absurd way to look at people. Right. And I resented it first and she did too because either one of us could have written the show or any script because I'm a writer. Right. Okay. Yes, I can do the jokes. Yes, I can create the narrative. And uh, we did that. We did a few other shows together. And then when I was offered Married with Children on my own, I went back to being on my own. And mm. then she worked for a little while and, uh, you know, and then we divorced and horrible things happened. And we have two lovely children. I'm very proud of them and they're all happy and healthy. Do you want to talk about the horrible things? No. Okay. Uh, I mean, not in a gossipy way, but I mean, no, no, no. I'm, I, I'm always interested in, you know, I mean, you don't have to go into the details, but I mean, it's, it's, Hollywood's a brutal world. I mean, mm -hmm. Steve Martin said, I don't know the exact quote, but when he wrote about Billy Crystal's autobiography. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, what kind of autobiography is there's only, there's only one wife, you know, and, uh, and, you know, cause Billy Crystal's had a pretty clean life, you know, and, and family that we man. know of. When Billy dies, who knows what we'll find out. Yeah, maybe. He could have been Strom Thurmond for all we know. Yeah, could be. It doesn't feel that way. But. but Steve also said comedy isn't pretty. Yeah. And that's the larger sense. Yeah. The business of comedy is really dirty. Yeah. And uh, it, it is a lot of that. Yeah. You know, the only on one show, uh, you know, and you have to forget all your bad habits. You can't roll your eyes. You can't tell people they're not funny. I mean, you're all in this together. Um. Sadly, what I discovered in the years I was doing it is that so many of the really damaged people are showrunners. Mm. You know, and you're there from 10 in the morning till 2 in the morning, three, four nights a week. Right. And that just is absurd. And so many of the showrunners I found trying to think they were enlightened people, and yet their marriages were like 50s marriages. They'd get phone calls. They always had a phone on the table, you know, 12 writers around a table. And they'd get a phone call. And it would be, you know, they'd say, it's you know, just even saying that sounds like the 1950s. And then they'd get calls like, you know, a light blew in the pantry. What do I do? And he'd say, you get in the car, you go to Gelson's, you buy six light bulbs. Right. You know, get a pack of 40s, a pack of 60s, a pack of 100s, because you're not telling me what it is and you'd seem to not know what it is. Right. And just this horrible, you'd hear the conversation. And then when they'd get off the phone, they'd talk about how horrible their wives were. Right. And they're in this ridiculous 50s marriage. And I'd sit there thinking, it's what you want. You like being this asshole, right. screaming at the woman at the other end, being the God who knows everything. You know which bulbs to buy, fuck you. And then the fact that they're making me not be with my family. Right. You know? So what I discovered, I also came up with Castro's rule of organizations. <laughs> you know, whether you're working at CVS Pharmacy or on an assembly line, or you know, you're a chemist at DuPont, or you're in a writer's room on a sitcom. Castro's rule, a third of the people do all the work. Mm. A third of the people do nothing. 
and a third of the people try very hard. Mm. But after 11 o'clock, you want them to shut up. Right. <laughs> and let the third who know what they're doing or who are better at it do. But the third that does nothing don't care. Right. They don't care how late they stay. They're not pitching. They're not getting in the show. They are stealing money. And it's sort of a given because it's every show I was ever on. Really? And it's, it's the world. You know, I taught school for a bunch of years. A third of the teachers teach the children. A third of the teachers hate the children, meaning the ones who do nothing. Right. And a third of the people have their hearts in the right place, but they shouldn't be teaching. Right. And in all the years I was in the rooms as a writer-producer, there was only one boss who said, he was the only boss who said, you know what? It's 10 o'clock. They pay me all the money. He had two checks in his, in his office, one for 13 million, one for 8 million. His name is Michael Moy. He was the uh, co-creator of Married with Children. Hmm. He was the only showrunner I ever worked with who said, you know what? They pay me a lot of fucking money. You guys go home. Hmm. And everybody, you know, he didn't say, but you stay. So right. we all either loved or hated that guy. Right. And then only one other showrunner, a guy named Tom Anderson, would say, folks, don't take this the wrong way, but Kathy and David and I are going to finish the script. Right. And, you know, as, as one of the Kathy and Davids, you hope that everybody understood that we're just going to finish it in the next half hour. Right. And it's nothing personal. You know, but of course... It's a very small world and a small-minded world. Right. So everything was taken personally. But those two people, among all the showrunners I worked for, they were a little more enlightened. And they were secure enough in their world to say, number one, I'll do it, Michael Moy. You guys were great, but I can stay till two in the morning. Right. You know. And Tom Anderson has said, you know what? We three will do it. And the other times... I mean, I swear to God, my, my children's first years, you just never saw them. You saw them on the weekends. Mm. You saw them in the morning when they went to school. Because the people running the shows are severely damaged. And they didn't want to go home. Right. You know, and it didn't necessarily translate to great television. This is every show. This is shows that failed the first 13 weeks. It's the shows that failed after four weeks. You know? Just people think, if we just keep staying here, it'll get better. You know? Having said all that, I loved it. I loved those 19 years because I was using that muscle. You know? What was the muscle I wanted to use? The funny muscle. You know? And I was in a room with where a third of the people were funny and we're telling stories that millions of people are going to watch. Um, I remember when I, I stopped giving a fuck towards the end and I knew that I was moving out of the business. Also, I was older. I was on shows where people would say, so David, it's always, you know, the Ivy League kids with that phony, you know, so David. Right. And I'm thinking, who talks like this? And by the way, the, the, the business did change when kids from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale majored in writing for sitcoms, which is such a waste of an education. Yeah, that's always intrigued me. Yeah. And they'd come in right from the Ivy Leagues, you know, having majored, and they write with 12 of their friends in a garage, and they'd write a spec script that none of them had written. All of them wrote it. And I once said to Michael Moy in a meeting, because, you know, we'd pass around the scripts that came in from outside writers, or people we were considering, you know, to be uh, added to our staff. And I said, Michael, the way we hire people is all wrong. 
I don't know that this person wrote this script. I don't know anything. You know how we should hire people? And had I been lucky enough to have you know, gotten a show on the air, this is how I would have hired people. I would have given people a story idea for that show. Here are the characters, we know who they are. Here's the plot, come back in three days. Right. Because that's the, jo that's that's the, the job. job right. The yeah, job is right under pressure and make it good. And not give them a fully pitched out show where half the jokes are from the three of us at the top. Right. And all they do is give it back to us with some of their stuff, which will change on day one. Because we want to see our jokes. Right. And I think, I thought that was the best way to hire people. Make them do the job. And instead, we would read spec scripts written by people who had friends on shows, who had written the spec scripts. I knew this. Right. In someone's house over the course of two weeks. And then they put the next guy's name on it. It's like how the Chinese and the Jews and the Italians made it in America. You know, we'll all work till midnight and then we'll pull our money and buy you a restaurant and buy you a restaurant. Right. And now it's, it's you know, children of privilege, which is why shows now have characters who are writers. Nobody's a writer in the real world, hmm. you know? And when I think of writer, I think of Norman Mailer. I think of, you know, Don DeLillo. I don't think of somebody who's a writer-producer on a bad sitcom. And oddly enough, I'll keep going further. Most people in television are frauds, you know, when they call themselves writers, specifically in the world of sitcoms, because what we do, 12 people around a table, whether it's eight, 10 or 12, or however many or few, we're talking faster and funnier than other people. And there's a guy who's in charge, usually a guy, who says, put that in, put that in, put that in. So no one's writing in that room, we're talking. Right. And because, it's like a baseball team is filled with guys who were all good in high school because from whatever age you decided to do this, you had a bunch of fast, funny friends, but you were the fastest and the funniest. Right. And now you're in a room with those people. So some of you are still going to be the fastest and the funniest. And I never understood why we didn't hire people based on, first of all, the, the deal of go write this and come back in 72 hours. Right. You know, with a with a thirty six page half hour. Or what about just putting them in the room for a while and see how they do? Is well, there, but that you can't that? do that because that's probably illegal because that's against the writers' guild. Oh, you see. know, you got to pay people. Well, I guess well pay them, but I mean give them a but, week. But there's like, nothing. Like? There's nothing that that there's no contract for a week. Oh, it's not like the NBA where you can get a ten day contract. I didn't know that. You know, and show off what you got. Hmm. No, it's there's guild rules that apply. When you hire people for something, you have to hire them for something. Got it. But, uh, but you can tell people who want a job on something, like an intern. Right. Go write a script. Right. And then we'd know, because they're not going to get all their friends together in three days to write a script. Right. Their friends are busy. <laughs> you know? And, and if I were their friend, I had a friend, I got to tell you, I lost a friend in LA. And it's because, you know, we were moving up the ladder. He was working an hour. And the thing is, People in half hour, we didn't even know people in one hour television. You know, all the doctor and lawyer shows. Right. I never watched them because first of all, I was working. And number two, they didn't interest me because I wanted to write sitcoms. Anyway, a friend of mine was doing hour shows at the beginning of his career. And I go to his house one day and he's got a box of old TV guides that he bought on a junk shop on Melrose. And he's taking them out in front of me and he's cutting out the log lines of TV shows. He's cutting out the log lines of famous hour shows. Like, uh, what was one with James Garner? Um, 
He's the detective. He has the shack in uh, the beach in Malibu. Um, oh, God. Anyway, brilliant show. And I'll think of the name and I feel badly because it was one of my favorite shows. Anyway, one hour, he's cutting out the log lines. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm cutting out uh, ideas to pitch. Really? And I said, you're seriously going to pitch old, like, episodes of that show or any of the shows you're cutting out? to be the episodes on your show or episodes, shows you're working on? He said, why not? And I thought, I can't be friends with this person. Because mm. I, I like to believe there's some honor in the world. And certainly in your own creative output. I never said to myself, gee, I'd like to write something like, uh, you know, a death of a salesman. Okay, so there's a salesman whose <laughs> children don't respect him. Okay, hardworking. Maybe his name is like Willie, Bobby, Jimmy, Johnny. Willie, Willie. Yeah. Willie. And you know, let's hit it on the fucking nose. He's the low man on the totem pole. Willie low man. Willie low man. I could do this. This writes itself. Right. Well, it's, it's already been, been written, written yeah. asshole. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I, I couldn't, I wouldn't, I'm not making myself out to be a saint, but because I knew a lot of stand-up comedy, because I'd watched a lot of television as a kid, I would bust my balls coming up with stories to pitch. I remember when we did the 48-hour film festival a number of years ago. And you just, you stood up, you're walking around the room because we brought you in as the head writer and you just pitched idea after idea and you weren't attached to any of them. Mm -hmm. And it was, the, it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen in my life. I was just like, how does he have this many ideas this quickly? <laughs> you know, some of them were better than others, but all of them, at least they, you know, in 30 seconds, you threw out a story. They were on topic. Yeah. yeah. That's what I remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they each one worked. Maybe not worth sure. investing. And they in. may not have worked for a lot of people. Yeah, but it, that's but just that you could even do that. Nobody could do that. Like not in that room. I mean, you know, it was it was mind blowing to me. I was like, wow, that's really impressive. I, I never forget it. You know. Yeah, that's that's that makes me feel really good. Yeah. Because the other thing, as a writer, you can't be attached to an idea. Right. Because you should have lots of ideas. Right. You know. You should have lots of ideas. And if that one doesn't work as good as it might have been, you know, you can't worry about writing. You can't worry about people seeing it or hearing it because your job is to have more. Don't worry about stealing. Right. You know, all writers, all, all performers are worried. They're going to steal it. It's the chance you take. Right. Diane Arbus, the photographer, had a great line. Being out in public, you run the risk of being photographed. Yeah. That's right. So, you know. Especially these days. You should want someone to want to steal your material. That means it's good. <laughs> I know. When I did my first night of comedy ever, um, when it was all over, I had filmed it. So I had a bunch of shit lying around and I couldn't find my script. Like I had written out all the jokes and everything and, and, and I couldn't find it. And I was freaked out that I'd left it behind. And it wasn't so much that someone would steal it. I mean, there was a moment I'm like, they're going to steal my jokes. I'm like, am I, what am I kidding myself? These are my first jokes. <laughs> God help them if they steal these jokes. And secondly, but I just didn't want, I didn't want people to see my process, mm -hmm. you know, cause mm -hmm. I didn't want them to see, let's just pretend that the end result was decent. Mm -hmm. I didn't want them to see all the shit that led up to it. You know, the, the mistakes I made, the bad ideas I had, like, you don't, you don't need to show everybody that. Um, and so that was why I freaked out. And then I finally found that I relaxed. But I did have a moment of panic, you know. Now, my mom said something recently. She's like, well, Joe, Jason, you know, you don't want people to steal your stuff. I'm like, Mom, trust me. It, 
Like, I like to think I'm not good. No one's stealing my work right now. You know. Here's here's a story. Okay. Um, I work with a bunch of young people. Young people who are starting to do stand-up in L.A. And however we meet, we meet. And I'm not writing material for them. I'm not charging them for what I think I know that can help them. But I went to see a show with like eight of them. And I watched all of their acts. And then I spoke to each of them afterwards. And one guy who had some great stuff, he had been a medic in Afghanistan. Mm. Not a combat guy, but a medic. And he saw horrible stuff. And he came out on stage and he had long hair and he looked like, you know, someone from the 60s. And, but a little haggard, like he'd seen something. Right. And he does, he did, they did like 10 to 12, 15 minutes. And he first tells us that like eight minutes in. So number one, he doesn't tell us he was a medic in Afghanistan. Right. And number two, he does a line when he's the medic. So this is further in. And he uses the phrase, it was a black guy and it was a black guy's cock. And it looked like a baby's arm with an apple in its fist. So I took him aside after the show. Right. And I said, you did a lot of great stuff. Here's what I think can help. You have to tell us immediately you were a medic in, Af- in Afghanistan and Iraq. Because number one, we're on your side. Right. You're alive, you're in one piece, and you were helping people right. stay in one piece. Okay? Now you're going to try to make us laugh? We already think you're a great human being. Right. So you have to have a way to say that that has a joke... Or two or three, but you must say that at the beginning. Otherwise, you're like every string-haired asshole comic. Right. And then you say that, and I'm thinking, wow. You know, I like this guy now. Anyway, that's number one. Number two, you can never say, black guy's cock looks like a baby's arm with an apple in its fist. He said, why not? I said, because Lenny Bruce said it in 1955. Oh. Okay? And he said, you know, I heard it somewhere, and I said, that should have been your first clue. Right. If you hear it, it means someone else either said it or wrote it. Right. Okay? I'm not expecting you to know Lenny Bruce, but that line in particular, and your peers will not know it. But I'm telling you, I know it, and if you say that in a club setting again and I'm in the audience, I'm going to yell out, that's Lenny fucking Bruce. That's stealing. Because I respect everyone who's done this. Right. And if you're hearing me now... You'll never do that line again. And, you know, he thanked me, thanked me, thanked me. And I, I just, I love talking to these people. Yeah. Because I've seen a lot of comedy, and I also respect that they're trying to do it. You know? So I'm working with these two women. Uh, you know, uh, they, they do a podcast, or a, they do a web series as a, as a team. Uh, one's a, a black woman, one's a white woman. And they're both funny. Um, the black woman's been doing it a little longer, so she's got a great stage presence. And, uh, you know, she, what was her opening line? Her name is Winter, W-Y. And she says, my name is Winter, W-Y-N-T-E-R. Yeah, I'm what you call black pretentious. <laughs> and it's a good line. Yeah. It's a good line. But I'm thinking, when I met her after the show, and she said, oh, oh, and I said, that's a joke about your mother. You didn't name yourself Winter. You right. didn't name yourself... You know, and I said, you know, that's, you know, how I got that name, W-Y-N-T-E-R, because my mother's black <laughs> and it's black pretentious. And then I said, especially when your mother is like La Quanda. 
<laughs> you know, so I think I'm like, you know, Natalie Wood. I mean, I have like a regular name. Right. Anyway, it wasn't that bad, but it was better than that. But she got it because we don't name ourselves. Our parents of name course, us. Yeah. So I said, just the logic of the joke. And then in talking to her, she said, so you mean in the audience, you're thinking about would, would I have said, would I have named myself? Would my who name me? And I said, absolutely. I can have six different thoughts in my head as things are happening. And honestly, you didn't name yourself Winter. Your mother did. Right. You know, so the joke has to change because as written, it's not logical. Plus, it's funnier to pass it off to somebody else. Absolutely. To walk in and say, I said the funniest thing. Yeah. I remember Jerry Seinfeld. I watched him. He's like, I had the line. I'm like, give the line to the other guy. You're giving, you're telling the story. We're all watching you. You're on stage. Mm -hmm. Just give it to the other guy. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. or, you know, someone said or whatever. It doesn't, it, it immediately, it has to be twice as good. Absolutely. But it also separates you. Yeah. What he's doing is saying, I'm here. Right. Doing this and all these other people are here. Right. That's a tough one. Yeah. So, you know, we can kind of slowly begin to wrap it up. Um, but you said in a text to me or something that you're, you're loving being here. You're thinking about moving back are you thinking about moving back here what is the what is the thought it's it's really funny i just turned 65 i'm on medicare now oh congratulations you know i mean i still have my great writers guild insurance which enables me to live like this um but thank you writers guild all those communists in the 30s for doing everything you did to get us a great uh, health uh, health plan anyway here's here's the thing i moved to Asheville in 2008 i lived here for three and a half years straight you know just love it love it at the end, though, there were so many things I wanted to continue doing that I needed to be in L.A. for. Right. And oddly enough, the first thing I wrote when I got back to L.A. was a movie about Jerry Lewis, which had been percolating, and I wrote a lot of it here. So Asheville is kind to me. It's a very inspirational place because it's outdoorsy, and I tend to be inspired by nature. Hmm. That's my God. Anyway... I moved back to L.A. and the first thing, though, that I really sit down to write, to create new from page one, was a play. My first play, even though I'd studied doing it, my first play based on the execution of Mary the Elephant in 1916 in Irwin, Tennessee. Right. True story. And I wrote the play. Took me a few months. Fix it, fix it, fix it. I created uh, 16 characters, wrote monologues, varying forms, varying lengths. And then started cutting and pasting and, and mixed them all up. And at the end, Mary speaks. Only mm. used 10 of the characters. So I had all these six, seven people over there. I could use them later. And then I meet a guy named Tim Powell at the TV Academy. And he has a Southern accent, which he said he only had because he had a few drinks. And I said, oh, you're like Bones in Star Trek, who when he had a few drinks would always speak in a Southern accent. Right. And he said, well, actually I am from... And he was from everywhere in the South. Okay. He had, was born in... Uh, in one state, went to school in another, went to grad school in another. Anyway, he said he went to grad school in Mississippi. And I said, Ole Miss has a grad school. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) we became fast friends. And I said, can you do all the regional accents and dialects? And he said, yeah, what do you want? And I said, how about uh, East Tennessee? And he did it. And to my Bronx ear, it sounded like hillbilly and Southern. And I'm I'm stuck on, you know, the, the negative impression of hillbilly accent. And then he did a few others that were slightly different. And when he said, this is North Georgia, this is this, I said, you know what? That's good enough for me. They sound authentic. And you were from all those places. 
So we worked on it. We put it in the, the 2014 Hollywood Fringe and it became a huge hit. And he took it, we've taken it to Chicago, Orlando, Toronto, right. Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where he's from. Anyway, the funny thing was the end of the show is Mary the Elephant speaking. She speaks, you know, 100 years on from wherever she is. It's like our town in that uh, regard. People speak from beyond the grave. And they've seen what's happened on earth. So I gave the script before I had shown it to Tim to my kids. Because my kids are adults now. And they've always read what I've written. Right. They've been to the tapings of all my shows. My kids are funny and they understand writing. So I give the script to my kids. My son loves it. Okay. My son actually says I cried at the end. Because mm. Mary speaks. My daughter, who's older, said, I say, what do you think? And she said, I don't think uh, Mary should speak at the end. And I said, why not? And she said, it's too much of a cartoon. And I said, Chloe, she has to speak. The whole show is about her giving her side of things. Right. We've heard nine other people talk about what happened. Some of whom were on her side, some of whom wanted to kill her. But now she has to speak. And I got to tell you, I cried writing it. Believe me, people are going to cry when they hear Tim do it. Right. So it's, it's now... You know, going towards the, the summer of 2016, the show premiered in June of 2014. She sees the show last year in L.A., last fall. And at the end of the show, she's sobbing uncontrollably. And I go over to her and I hug her and she says, Mary has to speak. <laughs> so that's great. I mean, every writer writes for themselves. You know, right. I figure if I'm crying and I'm, I can be a soft touch. But I don't cry at everything. If I'm crying while I'm writing something, and it's not like, oh, this sucks. Why am yeah. I writing this? Yeah, I'm, I'm crying because it's affecting me. I tend to think someone else will be affected. Yeah. And the biggest chance we took in the show, I felt, was Tim, a white southerner. One of the characters was a black man, a railroad porter in 1916 in Irwin. Because they had a big railroad hub. So he had to have worked there. There had to be black people. I couldn't write the show without him. Right. And the chance we took was Tim would do the voice. And it was just a question of would it be stereotypical? Would it be bad? Would it be whatever? Would it, would it offend minorities in the audience, black folks in the audience? So Tim did a brilliant thing. He asked a friend of his, a black actor he knew, to read the script without knowing what it was in a sound booth Tim has in his home. Mm. And, our, and this guy, Dennis, Dennis Neal, reads it comes out of the sound booth, his voice is cracking after reading the one and a half page monologue. And he says, what is this to Tim? He can't even talk. And Tim said, it's from a show that a friend of mine has just finished. This is the black character. I wanted to hear a black man do it so I can know how to do it. And the guy says, this is fucking great. And Tim said, do you want to direct it? And I wasn't going to direct it. Right. We were going to go look for a director. And Tim calls me and said, I hope you don't mind. I just hired a director, <laughs> you know? Anyway, Dennis was the director. He came over a few days later. He's black from Harlem, an athlete who went to, grew up in Harlem, went to high school in the Bronx. I'm from the Bronx, went to college in Harlem, played high school and college sports. So we had all these things in common. Within 10 minutes, Tim wasn't even in the room with us. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I turned to Tim and I said, now you know what it must feel like to be the white guy in the room. Because Dennis and I are New Yorkers. Right. Before we're, well, I won't say before we're black. 
but but I'm a New Yorker. That's how I describe myself. Right. I don't say I'm an American. I'm a New Yorker. Right. You know, we tend to have it. There's more of us than Wyoming Wyomingans. <laughs> you know, but Dennis and I hit it off immediately. We knew we had something between the three of us, hmm. and that's the team that did it. That's what did the show. And is it still? Are you still performing? It, it's. We just did nine more at a studio in Hollywood. Uh, Tim and this time the guy who directed it wasn't Dennis it was the guy who ran the studio the stage and he had the idea he asked me and that's the great thing about writing stage plays no one can change a word without asking the writer oh it's not like and I can movie, say yeah. no right and because it's it's you know it's not published yet but it's it's copyrighted and it's this is the play right you want to do the play I get paid every day and you want to change a comma talk to me right Anyway, the director, Johnny Coppola, no relation. Johnny Coppola said, I have a, an idea. Tell me what you think. I want a woman to do Mary. And my first reaction was, you can't do it. Because Tim has now been on stage doing the first nine characters. And he's knocked it out of the fucking park. Right. And now you're saying, Tim, get off the stage. We're going to bring a woman out to do the end, wrapping up the show where people are going to start sobbing. Right. And I don't think it's fair to the actor. Anyway, Tim was okay with it. He wanted to see what it was like. And eventually I came around. And so we did Tim doing the first nine characters. He basically introduces Mary. He puts the chain around her neck because that's the character. Right. He's fished the... the uh, I could see that working. Character. Yeah, you could and, make it work better. And then he has a bottle and a flask. Or he has a flask. And he gives her a salute with tears running down his face. And then he runs off the stage. So it, it just was heart-wrenching. Right. And it led into her opening line, which is, let me get one thing cleared up. I don't weigh five tons, because throughout the show, you've heard her introduced as Mary, the five-ton wonder, Mary, mm. the miracle of African, you know, whatever. And so I, it took me three days to come up with the opening for Mary, because I didn't know what she would say. Right. And then I thought, she's a woman. So you can talk about her weight. She's a woman. <laughs> And all they've been saying three other times during the show is five tons. It's on the circus posters. Right. She's the biggest elephant in captivity. Five ton Mary. And so the opening is, I don't weigh five tons. And the audience erupts. Right. And they're off the hook. They don't have to be sitting there, you know, ready to cry. Because she does it with chains around her neck. Right. She does it on an elevated platform. So she's going to be hung. Right. But now they've been given the okay that they can laugh. And she comes back to it, a callback, right. two or three times, because it works. And the audience is with her from the first line. That's great. I love it. I think it makes so much sense. When you describe it, you need to have him putting the noose around her neck, of the chair, because then it passes off yes. onto the character, and it makes sense that it's suddenly another person you haven't seen the whole time. Mm -hmm. So that's like, And he can't put the chains on himself. I mean, he could, but it's, it's a little weird. She has no hands. So, she can't. You know, well, I mean, right? But I mean, he could, he could, he could be transitioning characters. Oh, right, 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 um, right. But, I hear what you're saying. But uh, anyway, I like that better. And and um, no, and it was. And it then was... if a man says, "I'm not five tons," and it's a man making fun of women worrying about their weight. If a woman it does, it becomes meta in a yeah. bad way. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah it no, is. it's it's a man doing a woman's line that yeah. works for a woman, but is wrong for a man. Right. Yeah. It's a guy doing it's, a. It's the N word. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not that extreme. Well, here's the other thing. Uh, we have a friend who was in Straight Outta Compton. 
You know, uh -huh. there were the, the audiences were mixed. It was great. We had a huge variety of people. And what I noticed, though, one of the early shows, uh, when Tim would go into the black character in the black voice, and sadly, he's the only character who's never named, because somehow all the other people either get their name out or it's heard by another character. But there was no way to have this character say it without it being, and this is my name. Right. Anyway, his name is Captain Prescott, and he's the black porter. And he could be 40, he could be 70. Anyway, I watched this guy in the audience, this actor friend of my friends. I didn't know him yet. And when Tim started into the black voice, and when he starts saying things like white folks and black folks, you know that he's black. Right. And now Tim is doing this voice. And I watched him. And you know when people get that jaw muscle going when they're angry, but they don't want to show it too much? Right. And you see on the side of their face that jaw muscle is going. Like they're not chewing gum, like they're chomping down in their own teeth. I see that. I see his fist bawling. I see he's sitting there. I see that he looks at his wife like, you hear this shit? The look on his face says, you hear the shit I'm hearing? Right. Like, here's a middle-aged white guy doing a black voice. Right. And at the end of each show, we had built in, ultimately, a Q&A with the audience. Because right. people didn't want to leave. Mm. Proudest moment of my life as a writer. No one People wanted to leave. didn't want to leave. That's amazing. And so, Tim, uh, Tim, myself, and Dennis Neal, the director, would go up. And as many questions as people had, we would take. So it was built in that we had time right. afterwards. And it was intensely gratifying. Anyway, this guy raised his hand. And he said, I gotta tell you, when Tim started doing the black voice, I was ready to walk up there and punch him in the face. And I saw that, because right. I stand in the back. Right. And he said, but then I listened to what he was saying. Hmm. As the writer, yeah, it's all, it's all you. And he said, I was able to take myself out of the equation, who I am as a black man, and just hear it as someone listening to a piece of theater. Hmm. Close my eyes. I didn't have to see Tim. I saw a black man when I closed my eyes. Right. And, you know, afterwards when the three of us went out to talk, I said, guys, we have something. When someone wants to punch Tim in the face and instead says, I stopped and listened to the words. I don't know about you, but I feel like the best I've ever felt yeah, as a writer. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I mean, that's... And then Tim, you have to know, they're not going to punch you in the face. Right. You know, they may want to at first. Right. But then they're going to stop stay and hear stay what it. you're saying yeah, yeah. and how you're doing it. Yeah. And then he turned to Dennis and said, and if somebody punches me in the face, I expect you to have my back. Dennis carries uh, brass knuckles. With yeah. him. <laughs> and if I were a black man in America, I'd carry brass knuckles too. Yeah. You know? I remember meeting this electrician in uh, L.A. And he was a Latino guy, pretty short, pretty like a bodybuilder. Um, and I had, uh, put him on a job. I met him on one, one job. I put him on another job and we got in the conversation of self-defense and he was telling me where he lives. He lived, lived in some pretty tough area of LA. And then he started pulling things out of his pockets. Every, he was like a black belt and everything and everything on him was a weapon. He literally had like his keychain was a weapon and this thing was a weapon. That thing turned inside out and that was a... Everything he he carried on him was a weapon. This guy was a walking weapon. He was the nicest guy in the world. 
But if need be, he could do some serious And damage. the reality of his life in his world for Demanded the most part. Demanded that, yeah. yeah. Demanded that. Yeah. Yeah, it was intense. Yeah. Nicest guy, though. Nicest guy. But that's, you know what? I hate to say it, that's white privilege. Yeah. We don't walk around needing to have weapons, you know, secreted everywhere uh, all over our persons. Yeah. That was nuts. Yeah. It was the kind of thing where if he got pulled over by a cop and frisked, it wasn't a switchblade. It wasn't right. Like, it was it, common household items. It was. It was. It was. Everything was subtly, you know, yeah. was in, was a also a weapon. It was. It was wild. I have a cousin who was an undercover narcotics detective, like a Serpico type, hmm. and he had a gun in each ankle. He had a gun in the small of his back. He had knives on the inside of his arm. You know, I mean, and wow. things that didn't show. I mean, any place they could put Velcro snaps. You know, to hold something in place. Yeah. I mean, he was dealing with people who would kill him the minute they thought he was a cop. Right. So he had to have a fighting chance. Yeah. And I, I yeah. That's crazy. I can't imagine living in that kind of... No. Um, but that's what I mean. That's the ultimate in white privilege. We don't have to think about living in that world. Oh, totally. So privileged. And, yeah. I assume each night I'll get to go home. To a house that won't have been broken into. <laughs> no, I mean... You're right. You know, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, you're absolutely right. So, um, I'm glad to hear all the details about the play. I know you're here for a limited amount of time, so I appreciate you making time to do this. And uh, it was important for me to have you because you are directly or indirectly the impetus for the name of the podcast and kind of the theme and and the work we started together doing the documentary about Bobby Slayton is a huge part of what got me wanting to actually try this on my own. That's very gratifying so, to hear. Yeah, yeah. So it's for me, it's very full circle-ish to have you. And on I, can I end with a story about one of my favorite sure. poets? Yeah. There's a poet named W.H. Auden. Winston U. Auden, English. I'm not saying the name you right because I say you, like Y-E-W, like a New Yorker. It's Hugh. Uh-huh. W.H. Auden, brilliant English poet. He wrote a poem called September 1st, 1939. It has one line, it's you know, a long poem about the beginning of World War II, Nazis invade Poland. And he's sitting in a bar on 52nd Street. And that's the beginning of the poem. Anyway, he gets a call. He wrote the, writes the poem in 1939. He gets a call years later to put in an anthology of his poems. Let's say he gets the call 25 years later. They say, we'd like to include this poem in the anthology. He says, oh, I can't let you do that. And they say, why? It's been out in the, in the world since 1939. He says, I'm not finished with it. <laughs> so here's the thing. In the next few years, he changes one word. And then he calls that publisher and he said, you can use it now. That's great. You know? That's and great. just didn't feel finished. To my way of thinking and feeling... That's a writer. Yeah. It bothered him. Yeah. It bothered him. People were reading it, you know, people were loving it, but it wasn't right. Right. And not for the anthology, not yeah. for the definitive collection. I get it, man. So thank you again. I'm happy I got to see you. I'm looking forward to seeing you tonight. Thank you. Thank so. you. It's, it's been, it really has been very, it's been warm and it's been a very Ashevillian experience. That's enough knee slapping with David Castro. I know he's happier in L.A., but I miss having him in Asheville. 
you like what you heard, please visit our website, use our Amazon portal, and rate us on iTunes. Make sure you tell your friends about us, and if you feel so inclined, please consider making a donation on our donation page. That way, we can keep failing for years. <laughs>